Okay, it is 7 a.m., and things that run with me as a co-host run on time. So Chuck is here, and uh, I want to remind everybody that everybody wants to talk to Chuck. I wish I was that popular. Uh, so if you uh, want to come up and ask a question, uh, uh, ask for uh, permission to get on the panel. There's a long list of people waiting on the panel. So if you want to join the panel, be ready with a question or a comment, something you want to say, but don't monologue like a Bond villain. Uh, otherwise, I'll have to tap the sign. And uh, remember, Maria Report is here to provide you updated information and uh, analysis on what's going on in Ukraine, which is exactly why Chuck's here. So uh, note that we're also a registered charity these days, and you can provide your donations through the connection, the click uh, on the website, uh, and uh, uh, your donations will, 100% of them, uh, other than transfer costs, will go to the, the uh, charity of choice that we currently pick. Uh, and right now it's on Protein for Ukraine. Uh, one of our previous co-hosts is in Ukraine, and he's been delivering food packets to needy folks out in close to the border or to the front lines. And they are in serious need of protein in those uh, meal packets as they run low. So that's where directions or donations are currently being directed. And we'd appreciate any support you can give us. And I'm going to sit back, uh, run hands and speakers for Alan and uh, probably remain silent for most of Chuck's other than, you know, my one war college question of the day, which I'll try to come up with before uh, I get up there. So, Alan, over to you, and uh, we look forward to hearing everything from Chuck. Uh, really, Will, it's over to Chuck. Uh, welcome. Really looking forward to tonight. Uh, I'm ready to go where you want to go. Hey, Will, hi, thanks, uh, David and Alan. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I have got my... Uh, I've got my read in and I am ready to go. Alan, where would you like to go? So key maps are up in the nest, uh, starting uh, with the Bakhmut uh, access map, uh, followed by the Bakhmut uh, city map. Uh, let's start with, with that larger Bakhmut map, uh, because I, I think that is where we see uh, possibly uh, Ukrainian gains uh, to the north and west, to the to the south and west. I mean, it, it, it strikes me as a pretty confusing situation in Bakhmut. Russians are are digging in in Bakhmut city. Uh, Ukraine uh, uh, Ukrainian troops are, are now, it seems to me, threatening Russia with encirclement, which is a reverse. Yeah, I uh, I encourage our Russian listening guests to dig in in Bakhmut as much as they want. And if I had anything to do with the front, I would be para-dropping them in shovels so they could work harder. Uh, again, you know, the Russians don't seem to have grasped uh, the tactical uh, relevance of Bakhmut, which remains uh, pretty low, almost, almost irrelevant. Uh, they seem to have forgotten that uh, millennia of human conflict has taught us that cities are gained and lost by being encircled. They are not gained or lost by fighting it out um, uh, street to street. Uh, so, so again, uh, Alan, you're right. By, by fixating themselves uh, around Bakhmut, 
And uh, in this case, in Backloot, which is even better, folks, it's, it's an even graver mistake, uh, they do uh, run the risk of, of being encircled. Um, yesterday on the 15th, we had a little, little bit of a clearer picture on the map because the, the combat uh, was, was not as reciprocal as it was uh, today on the 16th. Uh, the Russians had a little bit of an operational pause uh, yesterday on the 16th. Um, today, they, they made their usual uh, ineffective lunges at the usual targets uh, to the north of Bakhmut. Uh, that's Hyrovika, uh, again, Bodanvika. They didn't strike at uh, Koromove, which is the basically the uh, northwest section of the urban area in Bakhmut, which is pretty much uh, the last sort of remaining uh, Ukrainian urban holding. Uh, south of Bakhmut, again, uh, they made a lunge at uh, Ivansky and the H-32 highway. Interestingly enough, the combat occurred closer to uh, the Russian uh, zero line, indicating that the Russians uh, didn't try as hard and uh, didn't make it as far. Uh, they also came across the canal, again, southwest of the city. Uh, they made an effort at uh, uh, Tupochki. Uh, that didn't work. Uh, ditto Predicene. Uh, and uh, that is a bit where it sits uh, today. Uh, Ukrainians are trading airstrikes again uh, with the Russians. Uh, Ukraine launching nine airstrikes uh, in, the, in the course of the last 24 hours. Uh, that's down from a high of 17 earlier in the week. And also it was another bad day to be uh, to have anything to do with a Russian UAV uh, with six of them shot down. Uh, so again, it looks like we've got uh, the sort of combat going on that we have seen uh, for a while. Uh, none of these are determined efforts on the part of the, of the Russians in terms of combined arms maneuvering, uh, but we do have Wagner pouring people into the urban uh, battle space, where again, they are physically constrained by the, by the architecture and three-dimensional terrain of the city itself. And uh, remember, battling in a city, regardless of how many men you pour into there, you have reduced the number of uh, tactical numbers of combatants who are actually in combat with each other. If you pour a company into an urban battle space, uh, that fight is going to basically go down to rifle squad on rifle squad and more likely fire team, which is basically half a rifle squad on fire team. So you're turning this into, uh, you started with 300 guys you put in there and the fight is devolving into basically 15 guys on 15 guys. And uh, I think you can see you're not getting bang for your buck there. So a, a Bakhmut is a smoking pile of rubble. Uh, I mean, if, if you look at any video footage, uh, there's no firm footing. Uh, it, it is climbing over rubble and twisted pieces of metal, uh, blocks and blocks of shattered concrete. Uh, what does that say about the fighting conditions in Bakhmut? It, it's, it's got to be 
uh, equally difficult for both uh, Russians and Ukrainians in the center of the city. It, it is, absolutely. Uh, and there is where, uh, if you are fighting on defense, uh, it, is, it is almost this simple. You get into a firing position, and the higher up in a building you are, the better. So you can shoot down on, on your foe. Uh, you want to control as high up in the building, any building that you can get to. You want to establish control on the upper floors. And if you are fighting on defense, it, it comes down, it literally is this simple. You wait for the enemy, and he comes to you. And that means he's paying the postage, right? He's burning the calories it takes to get to you. He has to expose himself to get to you, and you're waiting for him. And the calculus of, of any sort of attack is at least the attackers want three to one odds against the defenders. I personally like 10 to one, at least five to one. So you can see this dynamic uh, evolving. The Russians are feeding bodies into that calculus, that basically meat grinder. They keep pushing combatants into the rifle sights of the waiting Ukrainians. And this, this goes with what we've seen in Bakhmut for the last eight months. The Russians are fighting in Bakhmut for a political victory, for any sort of a victory that they can bring back uh, to Moscow. The Ukrainians on the other side of the zero line, they are fighting an attritional battle, which is war, co war college terminology for. The Ukrainians are fighting there because it is the best and easiest place to kill as many Russians as you can every day. And because Russia's commanders uh, from the top all the way down to the platoon sergeant, they are, they are absolutely fixated on Bakhmut and they, they are participating in this attritional fight. Uh, they are not well led. This is not a well thought out battle. This is simply a matter of Russia feeding people into the most disadvantageous terrain possibly in the entire war right now. As Alan pointed out, this blasted, ruined husk of a city. It, there are very difficult places to fight, but a blasted, destroyed city is probably one of the, one of the most hellish places to fight. And uh, the Russians are obliging by, uh, by showing up. And the, and the good news, uh, uh, Chuck, is that uh, uh, the good news from our perspective is apparently the Kadyrovites have arrived in Bakhmut. And I, I just want to, uh, unjokingly, I, I want to ask you, um, you know, of what you think adding that new chaos agent to uh, the final, uh, well, I think what looks like to be their tried, attempt at a final push to take all of the remaining city area in Bakhmut. So what do you think about adding that in with, you know, Kadyrovs and the Wagners and whoever's still in there from the regular army? Uh, doesn't sound like a, a great mix to me, but maybe you know more about the Kadyrovites than I do. No, I, I, I think the Kadyrov guys, uh, they sort of died down a little bit, but they were they made themselves famous in TikTok uh, during the Battle of Mariupol, where I watched at least one guy 
aim an RPG at a building, and his buddy walked right behind him just in time to catch the backblast in his face. Uh, they talk a good game. They are not effective soldiers. Uh, despite what they like to put on TikTok, they are not very often uh, at the front of these operations. I don't think they're very reliable. But again, <laughs> like the airdropping of the shovels uh, to our Russian guests in Bakhmut, I'll pay the Greyhound fare uh, to get as many of these people into the battle space as possible. You remember, they are the Russians have a conveyor belt of people uh, into the urban battle space. Uh, the greatest way to grind up a company is to just keep sending it. And again, walking these guys into the sights of waiting Ukrainian snipers, machine guns, RPG crews, um, these buildings, when you're, when you're fighting in an urban battle space, it's not just that you're uh, engaging the enemy with weapons. There are things called demolition ambushes, right? I hold a building. I've been in there for 24 hours. It's going back and forth. I'm not just shooting out the windows at the bad guys. I'm putting three or 400 pounds of C4 in the building. And when I pull back or appear to pull back, and uh, the Kerdavites and the Wagner guys come forward, you drop the building. That's, that's a demolition ambush. Uh, that happens pretty much. It doesn't happen every day in Bakhmut, but it happens quite a bit. And it is a completely legitimate battle tactic. And it only works against invincibly stupid enemies. And unfortunately, that is uh, what's going on in Bakhmut for the Russians right now. So, Chuck, you've mentioned uh, Popozna a few times. Uh, this is a town uh, to the east of Bakhmut. Uh, you have always pointed out that uh, converging Ukrainian forces on Popozna would uh, encircle the, the vast majority of Russian and, and Wagner troops uh, in Bakhmut city. Well, Ukraine has, I believe I saw, uh, launch some missile strikes on Popozna. What does that make you think? Well, that, you know, that particular town is, you know, looking at the map, and again, I don't have uh, absolute command of the, the, you know, the facts facts on the ground for the Russian armed forces, but Popozna, to me, it looks like your logistic and command hub uh, for the for the Bakhmut axis, uh, it it is uh, you know it is sort of the hinge upon which the Russians are basing uh, their effort in Bakhmut. And you know John Spencer and I have have often talked about there there is going to be a moment uh, and that that moment right actually it, it it could be now where the Russian forces uh, their effort uh, in terms of manpower and materiel. Uh, it will culminate in Bakhmut. And, and culmination means basically, uh, you know, the, the Russian forces are, are wearing themselves out. And that's a very hard thing to, you know, to actually know in a battle when, when that has, has happened. Uh, you know, in Gettysburg, uh, when, when Lee ordered the charge, uh, you know, uh, Pickett's charge, it was pretty obvious an hour and a half into that that the that the, the rebel army had culminated at Gettysburg. Uh, 
Notice that the battle didn't end right there that afternoon. The North didn't come rolling out and, and gobble up what was left, left of Pickett's division. But that was the moment at which it was over for the Confederates at Gettysburg. It's harder to tell when that happens in an, in an urban battle space. But what, what we have seen and, and what makes it so hard to determine, you know, when exactly the Russians have culminated in this area. Uh, for example, the, you know, the four or five attacks north and south of the city, the sort of perfunctory attacks that the Russians have carried out. Uh, when, when you've got that, that method of operation uh, almost every day or every 48 hours, the Russians will push forward at, at those usual targets. Uh, the suburb of Kohomave, uh, you know, Hydrovika, Ivanansky, they keep failing. Those, those attacks, and you know, you have to be able to observe one to really make a better determination than you know than than I am, uh, five thousand miles away, trying to piece through contact reports. But you 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 see these attacks if they're not carried out with any enthusiasm. We can certainly say that they're not, but they become increasingly futile. They they become increasingly perfunctory. And from what I can tell from the, from the contact reports and the topographical maps, in some cases, especially around Hyrovika, they come on the same axis every single time. So you imagine me trying to break into your front door every 48 hours, and I come right down the driveway, take a left, and come onto your porch, and I do that same thing every single day. So there is a point at which I'm judging both the capability of my enemy, uh, his morale, uh, his leadership, and, and, and the futility of, of these attacks. And I don't see, uh, you know, for example, we've, we've got o over the last six weeks, there's probably been 70 attempts for the Russians to take the, the village of Ivanansky. On a couple of occasions, maybe five or six, they've actually reached the H-32 highway. They've never been able to cut the highway, although it is under Russian artillery interdiction right now. They haven't physically been able to cut the highway. They cannot hold the village, although they've reached it two or three times, and they keep getting pushed back. Today's attack that took, took place over the course of the daylight today, again, it didn't work. And one of the reasons to wrap this up quickly is there are fewer and fewer Russian vehicle drivers, squad leaders, fire team members who want to be the first people to crest the hill, come out of the tree line, or drive their weapons uh, into the drive their vehicles into Ukrainian anti-tank guided missile range. And this is what I mean about an attritional fight. If the Ukrainians only have to lay down, look over those sights of their weapons, and wait for the Russians to show up, uh, you know, there's only one way a fight like that's going to end. And the casualty, the ratios, they're going to show it. So have Russians shifted troops from Kremlin, for example, uh, into Bakhmut? Uh, where are they finding the strength to continue to fight through the center of the city? Yeah, from from what we can tell right now, 
the 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 fight in the city itself is essentially a a, a Wagner operation. Uh, north of uh, north of Bakhmut, uh, along the uh, M03 highway, uh, this was also a Wagner operation for a while. Although now we've got uh, motorized rifle division uh, in there, uh, MOD troops in uh, Bakhmut, Muska. We've got uh, 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 Luhansk People's Republic uh, artillery brigade. Uh, so. I, I think we're we're also seeing. We don't get to see this. We we get to see uh, Prigozhin spout off on social media, but looking at the changes in the order of battle that that are reported. And again, folks, I have I have ninety eight percent open source information, so I very rarely get something I'm not supposed to have. But we can see that more regular troops are being moved into the northern sectors of of the battlefield. I think that's because Mr. Prigozhin does not inspire confidence in his Ministry of Defense uh, colleagues, but not that they're doing any better themselves. Uh, there are uh, there's a motorized rifle brigade uh, again MOD troops. Uh, they were responsible for carrying out the Ivanansky operations, and there's also a Guards Airborne uh, Regiment uh, down operating in the vicinity of Ivanansky two organizations that you would expect to be some of Russia's better troops, in particular a VDV guards outfit, I would expect to be uh, at least on par with the 101st Airborne as far as a Russian force goes, and uh, they're not delivering the mail either. So again, you, it, it's very hard to discern when that moment of culmination comes. And, uh, and again, we talk about culmination because there could be a point at which Ukraine decides to do. Uh, Bakhmut will change hands when someone converges in its rear. That's the only way Bakhmut is going to be either liberated or taken. And uh, I know it's a little time in the future, folks, but I promise you Bakhmut will be liberated and it will be liberated when Ukrainian forces converge on a town, on a village, on a locale like Popsna to the east of Bakhmut. And that's what's gonna win this fight for this city. And it's not gonna be block to block. Uh, Chuck, I, I think we have hands with questions about Bakhmut. So let's go to Meta, uh, Kura, and Taris. Meta, go ahead, please. Uh, Meta, if you have a question about Bakhmut, uh, go right ahead. Well, we'll let Meta figure out her audio uh, uh, problem. Yes, yes. Oh, okay. Meta, go ahead. Okay. Uh, today's big uh, discussion was about the uh, patriots, etc., which we you will continue to discuss later. I had to go to sleep, but I just heard that Budanov, uh, the Ukrainian secret service, uh, figured out that there is a lot, about 70 of these missiles left. I just wanted to let you know, for your further discussion, I have to go to sleep. So uh, thank you, Chuck, for your report about Bakhmut. Thank you. And thanks for staying up, and thanks for uh, dropping those facts on us, and sleep tight. Uh, thank you, Meta. Uh, so, uh, Curry? Taurus, lunchtime. Curry. 
We're killing them tonight, Alan. Well, I, I think I think there's a lag on the space tonight, Chuck. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, Curry, if you hear us, go ahead with your question. If it's about Bakhmut, otherwise we will come back to you. And so we will, in fact, go to Taurus, then lunchtime, then back to Curry. Well, Curry, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you. You know, every time when, when I begin listening, I, I, I gain so much um, information and s- such good knowledge and, per, uh, you know, almost on-ground per- perceptive of what's happening. Uh, I think, Alex, you were talking about, uh, maybe about an hour ago, about uh, s- supplying the F-16s and so on for, for Ukraine. And I think I've, uh, when when uh, you've uh, called me up before, you know I'm 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 from a left background, pretty pacifist. But I tell you what, just give them the F-16s, just do it. And when I listen, and um, my heart breaks—well, uh, not breaks, but it just is so touched when I listen to was listening to to our uh, Will and others here tonight talking about the experience of troops on the line, um, and especially in Bakhmut. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm, and I'm from a family that I, you know, uh, were participants in world war two. I happened to miss Vietnam, but I had neighbors who were part of it. But, but Curry, do, do you have a question about Bakhmut? Well, I guess I would say, um, because uh, Curry, I'll tell you why I ask you that question. Because there are lots of people uh, yes, that have okay. questions about Bakhmut. Uh, okay, very good. I thank thank go you. I, 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 we, we can chat another time. But thank you. How long can Bakhmut hold in the in the, in the present configuration that it is? But thank you very much. I really appreciate this this uh, this space. So I, I will cut out for now. So thank you, Alex. Good night. Yep. Good question. How long can Bakhmut hold? I, I think as long as as the as the Ukrainians want uh, the Russians to continue to continue to fight there. Yeah, that that is it uh, in a nutshell. And uh, you know, the other thing we 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 mentioned quite a bit the the Battle of Bakhmut, folks, is actually the Battle of Eastern Chasivyar, and all of the urban fight in Bakhmut is essentially moot. It, it doesn't matter who wins the battle in the urban space of Bakhmut. Why would you fight to take a city? Well, normally it's because they are nexuses of, of transportation, right? And we, we've talked about this quite a bit. You think on the surface, someone in Moscow thinks, because a railroad and a river and two major highways intersect in Bakhmut, it's got to be a strategic location. Well, you look again at the map. The river is not navigable. It is in a river valley. The North and South Railroad goes nowhere that you can use, and the two highways diverge at a 90-degree angle. Ergo, folks, uh, taking Bakhmut is not going to advance the ball anywhere to the west. And... Should the Russians win as I speak, they will then face the, the topographical bastions of Chasiv Yar. Uh, the battle to take Chasiv Yar, 
perhaps 40,000 Russians have been killed trying to take Bakhmut, I can promise you that number will be three or four times if they try to take Chasivyar. And they cannot advance past Bakhmut with the fortress of Chasivyar in their rear. And again, it makes the Russian sacrifices in men, material, fuel, ammunition, everything else, it makes it incomprehensible while they're still fighting here. And we've said that a lot. So, Alan, I know you've heard that one before. Uh, yes, uh, but it's it's real wisdom. Uh, and, and to back it up, I've looked at the topographical maps uh, around Chasivyar. And, and what the Russians are thinking, I have no idea. We've talked about those Civil War battlegrounds uh, with the heights. Yeah, I looked at the photos from Chasivyar overlooking Bakhmut. The, the Russians just, I, I have no idea what they're thinking. So more questions, uh, and, and then we will keep moving uh, fast through the uh, theater of operation here. I, I have Taurus. Uh, I have lunchtime, Richie, uh, and then Peya. Uh, Taurus, go ahead, please. Okay, so my question is not quite of Bakhmut is very close to. So uh, the area north of Bakhmut, actually the very northern flank of the current front line, uh, the area around the, uh, Kupyansk, I think there was some tiny, small, but advancement from Russian forces. They took another village recently, maybe today, to yesterday, I don't know exactly the date. So what do you think about that? Is there any strategic um, threat there for Ukrainians that Russia is creeping one village at a time and may they uh, be able to reach the Oskil River and the actual Kupyansk, or that's not important at all? And how is that balance of the forces between Bakhmut and the northern flank is? Uh, the, very good questions. Uh, right now, it, it, when to move forces around, and again, remember, Russia has the exterior lines of communication, meaning you've got the Ukrainians, they are in a circle, within a circle, and the Russians have to move outside the circle in order to uh, both just relocate their troops and, of course, to concentrate their forces and to supply that concentration in order for them to project power in into the circle. That means they have to move farther. They have to expend more material. They're, they're more open uh, to detection while they are moving. And uh, because of uh, the intelligence um, benefits that associating with NATO has had for Ukraine, uh, it's very difficult for the Russians to concentrate their forces anywhere that Ukraine uh, can't know where that is. And because Ukraine has interior lines of communication, it means that Ukraine can get there in time to meet the Russian threat and concentrate sufficient forces at the point of attack uh, to, to blunt Russian efforts. Okay, Russia, although it has a predominance of forces and it has more men and materiel available to it, what they have in Ukraine is, is right now, it is a finite amount. So the Russians have to rob Peter to pay Paul. 
if they move forces away from, for example, Cremena uh, to put them in Bakhmut or to reinforce some effort uh, towards Kupiansk, they have to weaken their lines in some other place. And the big problem uh, for Russia is that in order to make a, a substantial gain, in order to make progress uh, you know, from the existing zero line, uh, let's pick Kupiansk here. We're, we're looking at about, I don't know, 10 or 12 miles uh, for the Russians to, to get into Kupiansk. The amount of armor, artillery, uh, air defense, infantry, uh, armored fighting vehicles that would be necessary for the Russians to put together to get to Kupiansk. All right, Russia started this war out as a superpower. I would expect a superpower to be able to put together a punch like that in a matter of days. And I would expect them to be able to put those troops together and punch 10 miles into the enemy's guts. That's something that, as an American military officer, I expect our side to be able to do whenever the boss says, okay, it is not so easy for the Russians to do that uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, they cannot move their forces without NATO determining it. They cannot concentrate their forces without the Ukrainians knowing where that is going to happen. The Russians' communications are penetrated. Uh, you need air defense and you need, you need local air defense dominance to cover uh, your combined arms maneuver elements. Russia lost seven air defense platforms yesterday. I think this week they lost maybe 25 of them. So these are mobile surface-to-air launchers. Uh, some of the systems may be not so sophisticated, but capable, like the Buk M3 system. Some of them more sophisticated, the Panzer system. But they're losing these at a rate that they already can't replace. But that's having a, a, a very negative effect on Russia being able to put together, for example, this hypothetical uh, effort towards Kupiansk. So you can see what an interdependent puzzle this is. You know, I'm talking about and, uh, losses in Russian surface-to-air missile complexes, and that is affecting their ability to run an infantry thrust uh, over the course of five miles. So what we do, what we do see here is that and again, we can we can bring this straight back to Bakhmut. Everything that the Russians are losing in Bakhmut, every air defense system, every artillery tube, every tank, every armored personnel carrier, every platoon of infantry, every gallon of fuel, every shell, every bullet, every bomb that they spend in Bakhmut, they can't use in a place like Kupiansk. And frankly, that's what the Russians should be doing. They should stop what they're doing in Bakhmut and they should try to strike elsewhere on the line. But, okay, one more thing that makes that difficult. They're in Bakhmut, folks, and they are totally committed. And one of the problems with being totally committed anywhere on the battlefield, 
you might want to stop the fight and you might think it's over, but your enemy doesn't want to do that. And for all the Russian success in Bakhmut, and there has been this slow burning, destroy the city, move forward one building every week kind of, kind of success there, if you want to call it success, but it is Ukraine that is determining the pace of the battle in Ukraine, in, in Bakhmut. Despite Russia's gains, it's Ukraine that keeps them there. And frankly, I think they want to keep them there because they can debilitate themselves all they want in Bakhmut. And that means they're not going to be able to do what they should be doing in places like Kupiansk, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 miles to the north. Chuck, who has the tactical advantage in Bakhmut with Ukraine strength on the flanks? Uh, and this is to uh, the the west, northwest of, of Bakhmut, uh, to the south, southwest of Bakhmut. Uh, is Ukraine effectively funneling Russian troops into Bakhmut uh, in order to trap them? Yeah, it, but you know what? It is... It is Putin that is funneling his troops into Bakhmut because, you know, and, and, and here, here's the cognitive dissonance there. And, and Putin actually thinks this, folks. He compares himself to Peter the Great. I've got a pretty great ego, but I don't usually, con, you know, compare myself to, to George Washington. Uh, he's the richest man in the world. He might be the richest man who ever lived. Uh, that makes him better and smarter than everybody else. And he wants Bakhmut. Uh, and as long as he says he wants Bakhmut, his generals are going to try to give it to him. And, and, and literally, it doesn't matter what it costs. But I, I think when the history of this war is written, Bakhmut will be seen as the, the turning point, And there will be a resolution of this battle. And I don't exactly know what it is, but I can tell you what it will never be. Russia winning in Bakhmut with big air quotes, it is never going to be their springboard into offensive actions uh, into Eastern Ukraine. it's, It's the wrong location. And no matter what happens in Bakhmut, folks, start thinking this about this as the Battle of Chasovyar. Nobody who is Russian is going to advance to the west of Bakhmut as long as Chasovyar is safely in the hands of the Ukrainian armed forces. And this battle will continue in Bakhmut, doorknob to doorknob, building to building, apartment to apartment, floor to floor, as long as Ukraine holds Chasovyar and has round-trip bus service in and out of the urban fighting area which will allow them to, to feed clothes and arm uh, the defenders of Bakhmut and rotate troops in and out. And it's Russia that is shooting itself in the foot in Bakhmut and not Ukraine. So we have some more hands. We'll go to lunchtime, to Richie, to Simon, to virtual uh, lunchtime. Go ahead. Yeah, folks, there, there is a terrible lag on the space tonight. But lunchtime, if you hear, uh, hear us, uh, please go ahead. So while lunchtime resolves his audio issues, uh, we'll go to Richie, to Simon, to virtual, circle back to lunchtime. Richie, 
Hey, uh, thanks very much, uh, guys. Uh, yeah, really interesting space, as always. Uh, always interesting to hear what you have to say, Chuck, about the back boot situation. Um, and uh, just a couple of thoughts that crossed my mind. Um, I'm sure I've sort of heard you talk about this uh, at length in the past before. Um, and that is, for me personally, from watching this unfold over the last however many months it's been now that they've been there uh, in this area, for me, uh, you know, I don't think it was always supposed to be like this, but I think actually it's become a holding zone now. Back boot is a an actual, it's like a pen where all the pigs are lined up waiting to slaughter, because that's what it seems like to me. It just seems like that is a holding zone and that, you know, the, the, the defence and the warriors that have been fighting there uh, on the Ukrainian side, I mean, it's quite, I mean, superhuman, really, the feats and endurance that those um, soldiers have, have been going through um, to contain the, the Russian threat to, to that zone. And I, I, I don't really know what, what fixation this is all about. I don't understand the fixation that Russia has with this area, but they're literally shooting themselves in their own feet uh, by, by continuing. And, hey, stay there for all I care. Stay there because, obviously, they're not going to be moving anywhere else. Um, but, yeah, for me, it, it just looks like that. that is the zone where they are holding them at. Um, as I'm sure that's been mentioned in the past before. Um, and I, I, for me, I, I actually believe that, um, you know, they are going to uh, make some, some pretty uh, special moves soon. I, we, don't, we never know when that is because they always do it before we know it's going to happen and, and they'll never tell us that anyway. Um, but yeah, for me, yeah, just, just going to what, you know, everybody's saying it's, it for me, I think it's a holding zone. Uh, it always has been uh, a holding zone uh, for a fairly long period of time. I wonder what your, your thoughts are on that. Well, I, I agree with you. Absolutely. Richie completely. Um, and, it, it, it's not so much Ukraine that has fixed Russian forces in Bakhmut. Uh, I want to lay this, uh, you know, at the feet of the Russian command structure, including their national command authority, which means Putin. Um, they, the Russians have chosen to fight and make basically the center of gravity of their right now of their entire Ukrainian effort, their center of gravity is Bakhmut. But nothing changes the fact that capturing Bakhmut will, will not facilitate their advance to the West. It, 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 it isn't going to happen. And, and again, because you, you, you stand in Bakhmut and you put your compass on 270 and you point it where you want to go towards Kiev, and you see the hills of Chasovyar. And that's what's next. And it, it just isn't going it, it to work for them. What, what's so fascinating to me, and a lot of other military guys to look at this, is it, 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 it's, it, it's so incomprehensible that they've picked this city of all places on the line to press this hard for. 
And it just doesn't make any sense. Imagine, you know, we're, we're talking about 40,000 casualties here. Now, some people put that at 40,000 Russian dead. So that means at least three times that many. And that is the conservative rule of thumb. For every dead combatant, there are three wounded ones. So we're, we're talking about 120,000 killed or wounded, missing or captured in Bakhmut, which isn't going to get them up the N03 highway or on the H-32. Can you imagine what Russia could have done with 120,000 combatants? What could those forces, those vehicles, that artillery, those tanks, what could they have done somewhere else? And that's, you know, all of this adds to such a perfect storm as a military guy in my head to try to think, what on earth are they trying to do? Are they trying to lose the war in one place? And sometimes it feels, it feels like that. Uh, thanks, Chuck. So on to Simon, then to virtual. Simon. Hey, Chuck. How are you doing? Um, really enjoyed listening tonight. Really interesting. Um, yeah, you, uh, your thoughts on it are completely shared with a lot of people I talk to and reserve military here in Ireland. And we've had a few slideshows and presentations by officers that were kind enough from the permanent side of the defence forces here. Um, they're pretty much at a loss to analyse why they're pushing so hard. And um, for me and colleagues in reserves, we just thought, is Russia's strategy to be slow protracted and to push into areas where they could dig their claws in and just drag out the war. So in terms of do they even want at this point to push past Kassavir? Do they want to dig in at the canal and then over time try and protract this war and play the long the long game in terms of just grind it down and not take territory that fast? Could that be a possibility, or is it just you think it's complete and utter negligence on the strategy side? No, that's a you know that that's a completely legit question, and uh, you know that that could be what they're thinking, but uh, you know the the technological capabilities of the combatants are about to undergo. A, a really manifest change. And what let's just talk about a couple of, of weapon systems that are gonna that are gonna change. Uh, you know, we, we were we were talking about F-16s or I wasn't, but uh, you know, the air guys were before I got on here. Uh, you know, and I'm a consumer of air power and a user of air power, an observer of air power, and I I don't I don't pretend, uh, you know, to be an Air Force officer. But I do know this. Everything in a 21st century battle space, it, it starts from the top. You need things in orbit. Uh, you need air superiority. You need, you need fighters that can drive the other fighters from the sky. 
you need air defense capabilities that can protect your own ground forces and also make it very costly for your enemy to use his aviation to support his troops. Now you get a little bit more down on my level. You want extremely long-range weapons that can hit your enemy in the building where he is. And I'm talking weapons that can do that at 350 miles. Why does that number come to mind? Well, the Storm Shadow cruise missile, again, this is an air-delivered, British and French-made, low-observable stealth cruise missile. It can be fired ranges of about 350 miles. That's, that's the distance from Los Angeles to Monterey, California. And it'll land right on your doorbell. It can hit you in the front door of your house or the back door in your house. Okay, in order to fire that, I need airplanes that can fire it. I need pilots that can do it. I need a, um, I need a uh, situation in the air where I can at least get my planes uh, up. They can sortie. They can get to a position to fire this missile, and they can return. But when you've got that kind of capability, and those things are very expensive, they're very valuable, they don't grow on trees, but I promise the Ukrainians are going to make every one of those missiles do the, do the work of uh, 10,000 soldiers. Those missiles are going to be used on Russian headquarters. They're going to be used on, on Russian ammunition depots. They're going to be used on air defense nexuses. They're going to be used on the most high priority and important Russian targets. I'm just talking about one weapon system here. Uh, the Ukrainians are about to bring, and some of these some of these systems are already online. Uh, they've got JDAMs. Uh, they've got small diameter bombs, which is uh, a variant called the JDAM ER extended range. It is much more maneuverable. It's much more of a flying machine uh, than a JDAM. It has about one fourth of the explosive power of a JDAM, but that one fourth is still 250 pounds of. Uh, of TNT equivalent, that's enough to uh, really, really address most targets. And the fact that these are all precision strike munitions, like the HIMARS, that that Ukraine is going to get more of, more and more of these long-range precision strike weapons, and they will be used to to weaken Russia's ability to wage war. And, and that is a reason to get back to, are the Russians just trying to grind this out? Well, you know, th it, we're, we're going to start the second half of the game here pretty soon. And the Ukrainians are, are they started this game with the Fairmont High School football team. But the, the Ukrainian team that's going to come out after halftime is going to be the Dallas Cowboys. So if the Russians want to grind this out, they better start grinding harder and faster. But I don't think that's going to happen. So uh, Russia is up against this time constraint. And in addition to everything I just mentioned, we have a reorganization, a re-equip, and a, and a training reboot for the Ukrainian armed forces. And Ukraine is going to come out swimming, swinging here later in the spring and in the early summer. We're going to see combined arms maneuver warfare unleashed by the Ukrainians. And given 
everything I've seen about how Russia is trying to fight this war, a la Bakhmut, a la Vuladar, I don't see Russia being able to deal with the multitude of blows that are going to fall on them. I don't think their commanding general staff has got the bandwidth to deal with multiple points of attack. I don't think the average Russian soldier, I don't think his morale is good anymore. I don't think he is well-led. I don't think he is well-trained. Tra and I don't see them having a good time in the second half of this ballgame. And uh, we're, we're going to see that happen soon here. And I think we're talking a, a matter of mere weeks, anywhere from three to six weeks. Uh, what I just said is going to, is going to start happening. And that is just the start of it. So it's going to be an interesting summer. So a, a few more hands here, and then we really do need to talk uh, F-16s and Patriot systems. Uh, and uh, the hands in this order are virtual. Sky kiss uh, lunchtime if you're not asleep. So virtual, go ahead. Yes, fine. Um, very interesting to listen to. So I just have uh, one or two questions. Um, I'm just wondering why the the Wanger group is, you know, why are they so successful in uh, Bakhmut? And I mean, and how many elite forces are there in Bakhmut at the moment? I mean, the I mean, at least the Wagner group they had a lot of prisoners before. But have they kind of died off? And now, so what is the percentages of like really elite soldiers now in the Bakhmut area? Uh, what what is the composition of the Russian army in in this area now? Do you know? Uh, well, I I do have I do have some ideas about uh, Russian order of battle uh, uh, around Bakhmut. Uh, talking about Wagner. Uh, we're, we're, we're dealing with a kind of variable content, somewhere between 10 and 15%, maybe 20% of the Wagner group is, is its nucleus. And these, these, are, these are capable uh, combatants. They, they will get into the fight and, and stay into the fight. Okay. Uh, so let's, let's pretend we've got 100 Wagner guys. So somewhere between 10 and 20 of those 100 guys are these sort of dogs of war that uh, are, are capable fighters. But they're surrounded by 80 guys who range from completely untrained uh, felons, murderers, rapists, convicts who have been bussed into the fight, uh, who very often, it sounds like an apocryphal story, but it's true, they are, they are sent into the fight with incomplete uniforms. They don't have adequate equipment. Uh, we know in many cases they're sent into the battle with 60 rounds of ammunition, uh, that their service weapon that they're carrying, AK pattern rifle, can shoot 60 rounds of bullets uh, as fast as you can change magazines, which for these guys might take five minutes because they're not trained on the weapon. So the 15 to 20 Wagner troops they conduct battle operations by pushing this other 80% of those 100 guys forward into the, into the battle area to try to flood the zone 
in order for the Ukrainian forces to reveal their positions by taking these other individuals under fire. Cut back to the 10% of this Wagner force that is that are capable combatants. They can see the revealed Ukrainian positions and they can call in artillery, uh, indirect fire weapons, mortars, rocket propelled grenades, etc., on the Ukrainian positions. And that's how Wagner fights in the city. They're not, Wagner is, is not running out of cannon fodder. So as many people as they can bus in and try to fight like this, uh, that's, that's their, you know, that's the way that they're going to do it. Uh, south of Bakhmut, uh, there is the fourth separate motorized rifle brigade. These are Ministry of Defense. These are, this is a mainline uh, Russian unit. Uh, there is also the 72nd motorized rifle brigade. Uh, again, they are, they are south of Bakhmut. Uh, they are not doing so well themselves. Uh, and you've got the 137th Guards Airborne, uh, Airborne Regiment. Uh, on paper, a VDV unit, Russian paratroopers, they are guards unit. Uh, these guys should be your crack paratrooper outfit, right? They're not doing so well either. Uh, with a motorized rifle brigade, uh, paratroopers and, uh, and, and more motor rifle troops I would expect that to be sufficient Russian force to take the town of Ivanansky and cut and hold the H-32 highway until kingdom come. They can't do it. They can't do it. There's a couple of reasons why they can't. One of them is they've, they've shown that they can't do it. Their officers keep putting them forward, conducting the same attacks day after day after day, and these guys are getting beaten down. Frankly, the only place along the whole Bakhmut axis where, where Russia is actually advancing at great cost is in the city of Bakhmut because they are conducting that operation just like I said. They push 70 guys forward. These are, these are basically civilians. They are people who don't know one end of a rifle from the other. Uh, they are, it, these people know so little about battle. They, they, they can't know. They don't know that they're being sent in on a suicide mission. And, and those people have to be segregated. They have to be kept apart. They have to be kept away from real soldiers who would just look at their equipment and them and shake their head. So, you know, the viciousness and the evil and the, and the cynicism that it takes to, to use that as your technique in battle, it just, you know, it, it, it shows who, who we're fighting. But it also shows that, that Russia has no better answers than that, right? That the, the Russian commanders in Bakhmut, they, they, they don't care. If, if, they, if they're going to lose, they got 100 guys, they're going to lose 70 of them in every engagement. And they don't consider that a failure. That's just it. 70, 70%, that, that's, our, that, that, you know, that's our casualty rate on contact. And that's why the, the Bakhmut battle is going on. Right? That's, that's Russia's technique. That, that's how they're willing 
to, you know, to fight for one week to just advance one building in Bakhmut. It, it's evil. Uh, it, it's ridiculous. Uh, it, it's incredibly wasteful. But on the other side of the contact line, it is the Ukrainian armed forces that have determined that if they want to fight like that, if Russia wants to lose 70 percent in every battle that we fight in Bakhmut, then we're going to oblige them. Then we're going to hold you in Bakhmut and we're going to kill 70 percent of you guys in every in every contact. And again, we're, we're talking about a battle in a city that is not going to help Russia. This, this Bakhmut is not the gateway to eastern Ukraine. It isn't even the gateway to Chasib Yar, but it's, it's astounding that that's the way the Russians are fighting. So on to SkyKids. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much, Virgil. Good question. Uh, on to Skykiss, uh, then Jeff, uh, and then we'll try lunchtime one more time, uh, but then we're going to move on. So Skykiss, go ahead. Yeah, um, I do want to ask a question for confirmation about Pantsir and um, supply lines of Russia uh, generally, but I'd like to say a couple of just funny ideas first. They're really short. Well, um, well Skykiss, I, I really would appreciate if you ask your question and reserve your uh, your laughs for later uh, in the program. Is that okay? Yes, it's fine. It's fine. Okay. So um, I I may have been a little, my, my attention was a little strained at the time, uh, Chuck, when you were mentioning about the the problems they're having getting resupplied, which of course is really, really good. Um, I, I look at this from time to time, but just not today. Today has been all about F-16s. And yes, I want to get to F-16s and that my, my little laughs have to do with the storm shadow. So um, anyway, I'll, I'll allow uh, what Alan has asked. Thank you. So, so Chuck, I'm not sure I got that question. I, I guess it's about uh, uh, Panzers, which is uh, uh, Russian uh, mobile air defense. And as you mentioned earlier tonight, uh, Ukraine has been very successful in taking these air defense systems uh, on the battle line out uh, of uh, uh, out of work. I mean, they've destroyed them. Uh, this it will make a huge difference uh, anywhere along the battle line where Ukraine has targeted them. Yeah, the the the, the Panzer system is this sort of great big vehicle, folks, and it has multiple point defense uh, heat seeking uh, service to air missiles. And it has a, a radar-guided autocannon uh, as well. And the Russians seem to, you know, they like to go big. And the Pantsir has got the, the sensors and the radar and capable guns and these missiles themselves. They, they in themselves are not so bad. But you've got this big mobile machine, right? And everything is in it. The sensors are in it. The crew is in it. 
the ammunition is in it, the missiles are in it, the cannon is in it. You see where I'm going. All of that is one target right there. It makes its own heat, right? So there's, there's another something. And we've seen from video uh, the other combat deployment where Panseers have been, uh, which is Syria. And we've seen on multiple occasions uh, combat footage uh, from Ukraine. As good as the Panseer looks, it's got a problem. And that is it doesn't really work very well against low observable, slow UAVs, relatively slow UAVs. So what does that mean? Well, that kind of means that you get an uh, upscale hobby drone with a two pound shape charge on it and you fly it in there at 50 or 60 miles an hour or 20 miles an hour or 10 miles an hour. And that radar and its search modalities, it's looking for an American F-16. It's not looking for a 15 mile an hour hobby drone. So things like the Panseer have shown themselves to be extremely vulnerable to the new weapon that has debuted in Ukraine, and that is the slow-speed UAV. So the Panseer, in particular, has shown itself. Uh, it was ready to fight the greatest war in 1984 that didn't happen, and it's not so good at fighting the war in 2024, and that's what we're seeing. Uh, thank right, you. Thank you. I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you. That's great. Thank you, Skykiss. Uh, on to Jeff Allen. Uh, and, uh, and I think this will move us uh, along the line of engagement. Jeff, go ahead. Exactly. Um, hi, Chuck. Nice to see you. Nice to hear you again. Uh, I'm shifting attention from, uh, to the south from Kyrgyzstan to east of Holodar. And uh, what I'm curious is, I've been, there was a couple of weeks ago, we had what seemed like reports of a fairly sharp engagement that was probably a reconnaissance in force near Nova Kakova. Uh, but there's, uh, I'm curious as to what we know about the evolution of Russian defensive developments or, or fortifications along that line of contact. And I'll start off, that'll be kind of my first general question to kick off the the discussion of this front. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, what, there's, there's something I like about the Dnipro River front. Um, one of the things I like about it is, and we've talked about this a lot, and to remind people, uh, the Dnipro River comes up from the Black Sea, uh, basically goes uh, northeast, and then it sort of, uh, you know, turns turns east and then back north. It is, it is essentially Ukraine's Mississippi River. Uh, sort of imagine if the Mississippi uh, took a right turn at St. Louis and uh, you know, headed down to Austin. That's, that's sort of what uh, the Dnipro is to Ukraine. It is a formidable barrier, right? In places it's as wide as the Mississippi. In some places it's wider than the Mississippi. Russia's problem is that it, it has occupied essentially, uh, well, it, it's bitten off uh, the amount of Ukraine that it feels necessary uh, to secure Crimea, right? So in order to fulfill that mandate, Russia has to maintain troops from Melitopol all the way over to the Dnipro River. 
And in those positions, those forces occupying that sector of, of, of Ukraine, they can't really do anything, right? They occupy this, this, this piece of ground ac across from Kherson and along the Dnipro River, and they have to remain there as a force in being. Now, when you're paying for soldiers who aren't really fighting, right, you got to feed them, you got to clothe them, you got to provide them heat, water, fuel, ammunition, everything else. Everything that Russia diverts over there, to me, uh, you know, that's great. So if I were a Ukrainian commander, I have to make sure that I do enough across the river and south of Kherson, across from Novokharkova, I want to make sure that the Russians have to keep their forces there, that they can't pull people out of that theater, that portion of the theater, and send them to Bakhmut or Vuladar, where they could do some good, but we want to try to pin them down there. And I think that's what's essentially uh, going on around there, and especially in Novokharkova. Following question. Um, you mentioned uh, the they're Russians trying to hold against Vladar, and uh, we know that there's some rather lively partisan activity uh, around Melitopol and probably up towards Tokmak. Um, I have read that for the fortifications that they've built in that region, there's a couple of really nice maps out there. I should have dumped it up in the nest. I'll, should, I'll see if I can try to find it. Um, it has been written that they're significantly under strength for being able to have any sort of uh, defense in depth across that entire front, about 120 kilometers from the east end of the reservoir all the way to past uh, Bulidar to where the front turns north, which is somewhat north and east of uh, Mariupol. So now what do you think are some of the tactical problems for the Russians and opportunities for uh, the Ukrainians in that area, if they decide to focus on it. I, 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 there, there's a couple of uh, opportunities for uh, Ukraine, and and you know everyone here remembers the uh, the bodyguard of lies, right? That surrounded the Normandy invasion. It was, it was extremely important for the Allies to keep Germany guessing about where that blow would fall. Of course, everyone knows, you know, they were through uh, determined and very intelligent uh, methods of deception, which was an entire campaign in itself. They were able to keep Hitler and his generals fixated uh, on the idea that the Allied invasion would come at the Pas de Calais. The, cl the closest point, the shortest point across the channel, which made a lot of sense when Normandy was actually the real target. Some of that is going on right now in the Dnipro. Uh, it was no coincidence a couple of weeks ago that the world seemed to discover that Ukraine is amassing landing craft and river patrol boats, etc., on the north banks uh, of the Dnipro. I actually don't think that Ukraine is going to project power across the Dnipro. But what I think doesn't matter very much. Because if I were a Russian general or a colonel with a couple hundred of square miles to defend on the south bank of the Dnipro, 
I cannot just sit there and say, I don't think they're going to come across the river. I've got to be ready to stop them from coming across the river. And that means my force has to be there. I have to be on the front part of my feet. I've got to be paying attention. And Ukraine has been very good about keeping the pressure on in this area. Uh, what we don't hear about, um, but what is going on quite a bit, is the cross Dnipro raids and reconnaissances mm-hmm. that are happening on a nightly basis. And that it does a, a lot of things. Of course, it, it provides tactical reconnaissance for the Ukrainian forces. Uh, those raiding parties, uh, special operations forces acting with unconventional warfare forces, by that I mean partisans, uh, and it's having an effect. Just today, I got some information from an extremely reliable source uh, that was telling me that uh, uh, the, the Wagner Group has uh, has put uh, some of its more capable forces into Tokmak, uh, along with several other uh, PMCs, uh, PMC Redoubt, uh, the Tsar's Wolves, uh, Pakmak, uh, Fekel and Plamaya. These are these are there are a lot of Russian PMCs besides Wagner. Uh, they put these special operations forces around Pakmak, uh, and they've had to do that, folks, because the area around Melitopol up towards Tokmak, it is bandit country, and the Ukrainians are increasing partisan activity here. Uh, we've seen a number of assassinations, uh, bombings, acts of sabotage, and they're, they're by doing this and keeping the pressure on here, uh, they are forcing the Russians to maintain a strong and credible military presence uh, in what otherwise would be a backwater. And, you know, this is the, this is the whole purpose of special operations, right? It is unconventional warfare. And the best thing a special operations force can do is distract the enemy. And that's what they're doing. God bless them. An observation and another question. Uh, The observation is, is that if that uh, the crossing at Nova Kakova in particular is presents a real significant strategic threat to the Russian occupation of the south bank of Dnipro. And they're going to have to protect that. And uh, and that means. You know, any sort of anybody with sense is not going to go straight into the teeth of what, what the fortifications they've got there. But that reservoir presents a long stretch of territory that would be available for somebody with even reasonably. Well, put it this way. If you get a, a, a mechanized battalion uh, onto shore outflanking the defenses at Nova Kakova, it would create enormous headaches for the Russians. You know, the, the, the question uh, following on with that, going back over towards uh, Melitopol, is, I, I've, and actually another observation here, that, that they've only got about 30% of the troops that they need to cover that front, that front of over 120 kilometers. But one of the things that I hear, I'm sensing notably, do they even have a mobile reserve that they can apply to throw out a breakthrough? Do they even have anything like that? You, you know, I, I, I think that they were talking about the Russians, right? Correct. Yeah. You know, they, they have got uh, at least two combined arms armies uh, 
to the to the west of of Melitopol. That's you know that that's a lot of power. But you know, he, but here's the thing, and and essentially right now the Ukrainian effort to the west of Melitopol has been this special operations reconnaissance, uh, unconventional warfare effort, which, which is which is perfect for harassing, uh, reconnoitering, and and fixing the Russian enemy. And it's great that the Russians have got you know two armies, which is the largest tactical uh, formation. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking 40,000 guys. Um, and it's great that the Russians have those forces here because, again, they're not participating in combat anywhere else. And although the Russians have this great preponderance of forces here, how are they going to find an enemy that is what, you know, operating with the partisans, yeah. uh, assassinating their generals? It's 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 great because the, there's the Russian bear and they're being harassed by Ukrainian flies. And that is perfect in this case. And, and as you pointed out, you know, there is going to come a Ukrainian effort. One of these offensive prongs is going to drive south towards the Sea of Azov. It absolutely will. As a strategic goal, it's one of the things that must happen in the rest of this war. And that is going to eventually split the Russian forces in two. And then the, those great Russian forces occup, you know, operating west of Melitopol, you think everything would be hunky-dory for them. They've got plenty of place to maneuver. They've got plenty of power. They've got air defense. They've got organic artillery, armor, infantry, everything they need, except they'll only have two lines of communication and supply. In that vast area, there will only be two roads for them to be supplied by the M-17 and the M-18 coming up from Crimea, which at that point, when the Ukrainians reach the Sea of Azov, and they will, the entire Russian effort west of Melitopol will essentially be, be being supplied by the Kerch Bridge. Oh, they're done when that happens. <laughs> One road, and you know, right, you're on it. They will be done when that happens. So in the meantime... Ukrainians want to keep as many Russians in pos as possible across from Kherson. Uh, thank you very much, Jeff, for your questions. Uh, great, great questions. Absolutely. I, I, Chuck, I want to move on to some discussion about weapons systems uh, on the ground in Kyiv uh, before we move to Avdivka uh, and before we talk about F-16s. I'm especially interested uh, in the Patriot system. Uh, so the, uh, the Russians uh, have claimed uh, that they have either destroyed uh, a Patriot system, uh, maybe there's been some damage, uh, we don't know. Uh, this would be around Kiev. But I, I think it's important for people to understand uh, what a full Patriot system uh, looks like. Uh, it's a dispersed system. It's not only about uh, uh, Patriot missile launchers. Uh, it's about uh, uh, radars, uh, control stations, uh, tactical command, uh, and uh, and control uh, command posts. 
uh, and uh, and additional support uh, vehicles for the for the total Patriot battery. Uh, it's uh, you know it, it's eight pieces of equipment uh, dispersed in a pretty wide area. Very difficult actually for the Russians to take out a battery. Maybe uh, they could uh, uh, cause some damage on a Patriot missile launcher. Can we talk about Patriots in uh, Ukraine, how effective they've been? Yeah, I, absolutely. And this, you know, this is an interesting segue. We were, we were talking about the Panseer system. And if you're going on looks, folks, you'd say, wow, the Panseer looks, uh, it looks like it could shoot down some airplanes. And I'm looking at the Patriot and, you know, it's a bunch of boxes on some trucks and uh, it's a lot of trucks. Okay, well, we, we talked about how you've got the Panseer and it's all there, right? You need to hit one target and you've got the whole enchilada. There, as, as uh, you know, as Alan was saying, the Patriot missile battery is actually a complex. There's a you know, the OE-349, it's an antenna mast. Uh, it's, it, it's a radar and sensor station. It can be deployed at some distance from the launch vehicle. Uh, there are a variety of radar sets. Uh, they're not, not actually very big or impressive in themselves. They also can be dispersed, dispersed away from the launching vehicle. Uh, the launching system uh, itself is actually uh, on a trailer, uh, which can be moved uh, in, a, in, a, in a short matter of time. Uh, uh, there are a number of launching stations. They each carry like a four pack uh, of, of missiles. Uh, it fires the uh, MIM 104C. It's a, a pack two. Uh, interceptor uh, moves at about Mach five. Uh, you know, it it it's great uh, gift is that it's mobile and it's dispersible. So I think what we saw in the last couple of uh, in the in the yeah, attack the other night, and it, it, it's sometimes it's hard for me to look at these videos and I cannot verify if it's exactly. Uh, what I'm looking at, but the video that I've saw, seen a couple of times, uh, seems to show this air battle in progress, and there is a Patriot launcher, and it is behind a, a building. And what we do know is that 18 uh, missiles of various types were fired by the Russians at the city of Kiev, and that is where we know that Iris-T systems and uh, Patriot systems are, are located uh, in areas that they can support the de air defense of, of the city of Kyiv, which of course is one of Russia's favorite uh, targets. So there were 18 incoming missiles uh, in, this, in this night engagement, and they included uh, eight hypersonic Kinzhal uh, air-to-surface air to missiles. Uh, they can only be fired by one Russian aircraft, which is the MiG-31, which is the MiG Foxbats, uh, I don't know if it's his big brother, it's certainly his uh, grandson. Uh, one MiG-31 can fire one Kinzhal missile. The Russians have been telling the world uh, forever uh, 
uh, that this missile cannot be defeated, it cannot be intercepted, and as it's tooling along at, I believe, Mach 7, uh, the Russians have convinced themselves, if not the world, that this missile is maneuverable through its entire uh, firing uh, process, meaning that once it's going at Mach 7, uh, it, it can maneuver uh, towards its target. One of the problems is that when you're going seven times the speed of sound, you're not pulling any tight turns, right? Uh, your ability to maneuver is only a matter of five or 10 degrees. Now, that can be a lot, uh, a lot of effect on your targeting, uh, you know, on the ground. However, when you maneuver at that speed, you also lose speed. So, from what I could tell looking at the engagement uh, that I could see, uh, the Patriot battle, uh, the Patriot battle battery was engaged. It fired five or six, possibly seven missiles in the course of about 45 seconds. Uh, so what that told me is that at least some portion of these Russian Kinzals were targeted directly on this battery. So the Russians got up there uh, with seven MiG-31s, which I think is a significant portion of their total type of that aircraft, and they launched all of those hypersonic weapons against this one Patriot battery. So you literally had the shootout at the OK Corral. Now, I can't confirm that this video that I saw is, is, is what I'm telling you, but given the rate of fire, uh, of this Patriot battery, and I have never seen a Patriot battery fire that fast. I wasn't even sure they could fire that fast. Uh, so that rate of fire, six or seven Patriot missiles, that is, uh, you know, there are four missiles in a pack. So this Patriot battle fired off three packs of its missiles. Uh, it appears, and I could see... Uh, these missiles leaving, uh, the, the fire in the sky, their trails, everything else. Uh, I, I saw an explosion. Uh, at the end of their launch cycle, there was a ground explosion. But frankly, to me, it didn't look like an explosion that was big enough to be the impact of a Kinzhal missile. There was a ground explosion in the proximity of the Patriot launcher. Uh, CNN is now reporting that uh, at least some portion of the Patriot battery was damaged. Uh, I don't know how significant that damage was, but given the fact that there are at least four or possibly five vehicles associated with a Patriot battle uh, battery and possibly three or four or maybe five uh, four-pack missile launchers, uh, we, we don't know what happened. The Russians are saying they destroyed a Patriot uh, missile system. Uh, if you want to destroy it, I should have seen four or five explosions. So uh, that's, that's my battle damage assessment of the video I could see. Uh, so I think they possibly uh, damaged something. But we'll, we'll see what happens uh, tonight. Tomorrow night, the Russians are certain to attack Kiev again, and let's look at the intercept. Uh, let's look at the intercept ratios. 
uh, after everything I've told you last night, 18 missiles of various types, uh, Kinzhal's uh, uh, S-400 surface-to-surface missiles were fired as ballistic uh, missiles towards the city. Uh, the Russians also fired short-range ballistic missiles, also uh, not anti-aircraft missiles, but ballistic missiles at the city. And they also uh, used uh, Iranian Shahid uh, drones as well. The Ukrainians went 18 for 18 last night. That's an interception rate of 100%. That's pretty good. Uh, or, or as I like to say, Chuck, uh, looking at batting averages, it's 1,000%. Uh, not even Ted Williams uh, did that, except in a game or two. So just talking about air defense uh, in Ukraine, uh, it's a success story, uh, not only because Ukraine uh, is more and more effective with air defense, uh, be, but because uh, it's a success story about training. Uh, Ukrainian troops uh, were in Oklahoma training on Patriots. Uh, it's a success uh, about delivery uh, of Patriot uh, battery systems to Ukraine uh, by the United States and, I believe, by Germany. Uh, there is an additional German Patriot system uh, delivered to Ukraine. Uh, and, it, you know, uh, the Patriot system is not the only one uh, that is held by NATO nations uh, the the British and the French, I believe, uh, have developed a, a kind of mirror system uh, called a, a, a SAMP-T. That is also going to be delivered to Ukraine if it's not already in theater. So Ukraine's air defense inside its territory, around its critical cities, its critical infrastructure, is growing stronger and stronger by the day. This has to be incredibly frustrating to Putin and the Russians who have this, this terror mission uh, as their primary mission. Strike the cities, strike the civilians. It's failing. Yeah, and, and, and that is absolutely delightful. There is a, there is a German design system called the, the SAMT uh, in addition uh, to the Italian and French systems that are now operational as well. There was a SAMT battery in, uh, in, involved also in the integrated air defense of the city of Kiev. Now, this may no longer be their numbers, but as of four weeks ago, that SAMT battle, battery had never fired a missile that missed an incoming target. So they were batting a thousand percent also. And that that's incredible. And and you, you, Alan, you, you are so right. It's got to be so frustrating to Putin to launch his state-of-the-art weapons at the target he most wants to hit, Ukrainian civilians, uh, and he can't do it. What's fascinating to me about last night's struggle is Russia actually appeared to be trying to hit a military target in Kiev, which might be the first time that's happened in this war. Uh, it really looked to me la last night like that Patriot, that Patriot battery was, was uh, fighting for their life. And damn if they didn't win the fight. And uh, it, 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 it's inspiring. 
And one of the things that's going to change the complexion of this war is when that sort of air defense spreads all over the nation of Ukraine. And that will do a couple of things. It will make Russia, uh, Russia's attacks on civilians uh, no, longer, no longer of any effect. And it will also prevent the Russian Air Force from doing anything relevant militarily over Ukraine. And Ukraine needs everything. They need more Patriots, more Santees, uh, more Iris Ts, more Avengers, uh, more everything. And, uh, and they're getting it. And right now, the Russian Air Force is up against the most sophisticated and capable air defense system that anyone has ever seen in the 21st century. And that's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. We all saw in the desert wars how effective American and, and coalition air defense was against the Iraqi Air Force, right? It rendered them moot. That's what needs to happen in Ukraine. And uh, with God's grace, that's what they're going to get. And, and don't, don't you think, Alan, too, or sorry, uh, uh, Chuck, that uh, it, it also appears to me that it, it's a bit, a bit of a case of piling in with success breeds interest because, um, I mean, I hate to say it, but I'm sure there are a lot of air defense uh, manufacturers out there who want to get their systems in and test them out, if you will, in real world conditions. Uh, and now that everybody is, you know, has piled in with everything from the, the Avengers up through the, the Irish T's and the, and the Patriots, it looks to me like uh, there are a lot of other folks that don't want to miss out and see if their systems are as effective as well. Do you think that might be the case? Uh, no, I, I would love that to be the case. Um, you know, I, I, I would hope that, <laughs> that, that that wouldn't be the, you know, the, the motivation. I don't kid myself, of course. I mean, the motivation should be to, to you know, help the Ukrainians defend their cities. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I think so as well. And nothing succeeds like success. But that, that battle last night, I, I, I can say this. Looking at that film, uh, I'm not the most experienced guy in the world, but I have never seen a Patriot battery fighting for its life. And that one was. And it was fighting against arguably what was the most sophisticated air to ground missile in service right now with any air force. And it nuked them folks, 100% interception rate. That's pretty good. So Chuck, some air guys, uh, I think are going to join us a little bit later tonight uh, to talk more about F-16s uh, and that final piece of the puzzle. Uh, that Ukraine really needs for the counteroffensive. So in the meantime, uh, what do you think about uh, taking a look at Avdivka? Uh, the map is up in the nest. Uh, it just strikes me that Avdivka could become a lot more critical uh, than Bakhmut, uh, especially if the Russians decide uh, to get intense in Avdivka. Uh Alan, I, I absolutely agree with you. Avdivka is, is a place that it, it would make sense for the Russians to concentrate forces and, and try to take it. Uh, it there, are, there are two prizes to be had uh, in Avdivka. Well, there are three, actually. The H-20 highway uh, heads north uh, out of Avdivka, 
Avdivka is sort of the industrial rail yard suburb of of the of the major city of, of Donetsk, uh, which the Russians have held now for uh, years. Uh, so Avdivka is to the to the northwest uh, of Donetsk. It's kind of a gritty industrial town whose reason for being is a major rail switching uh, hub there. Uh, another uh, important transportation artery that is here uh, in Donetsk slash Avdivka is the M30 highway, which heads west uh, in, into Ukraine. Much like Bakhmut and Chasiv Yar, uh, the Russians cannot use the M30 highway to project power west from Donetsk as long as Avdivka is, is held by the Ukrainians. And again, it's one of those, uh, you know, you, you can't always, or in most cases, I don't want to say always, it, it's generally not a good idea to leave a, a strong enemy position in your rear unless you have it encircled and cut off. And that's a case where, where you can do it. But generally, you don't want to do it. Uh, remember in the Battle of the Bolts, the Germans had terrific success. Uh, they were able to surround uh, the 101st Airborne Division, division folks, at Bastogne. But when you've got a division of paratroopers in your rear, you have constantly got to be looking over your shoulders, right? And arguably, uh, the 101st holding on to Bastogne, that's certainly on the short list of why the Ardennes offensive did not work for the Germans. Okay, ditto Avdivka. Interestingly enough, uh, over the last month or so, uh, the Russians made some gains to the north of Avdivka, uh, in hindsight, they weren't really very significant. There were some gains. They actually were able to, to uh, capture a diverging uh, rail spur to the north of Avdivka. But these are lines that have not changed very much since the first Russian hybrid invasion in 2014. And uh, I'm not impressed by, by the Russia's effort, efforts here in this theater. Now, could that change? Absolutely. And one of the reasons it could change is very close to the Avdivka battlefield, you have got this big city of Donetsk. We've talked a lot about uh, how difficult it is for the Russians to converge and concentrate their forces. That means they're fighting guys, the, the material those fighting guys need, uh, the tanks, the artillery, the everything else. But to converge them into a city, they've got a little bit less observability. There are more places to hide those troops. Uh, the city is not very far from uh, Abdivka per se. And this is a sort of place where I would think perhaps the Russians might be able to consolidate forces, concentrate them, and push towards Abdivka. I say think because they haven't been able to do that. Uh, yesterday, or I believe it was today, the 16 May, uh, maps on Avdivka, uh, there was an attack on uh, the southwestern suburbs of Avdivka. 
uh, we talk about the Russians doing the same thing every day on the same attack axes with essentially the same force posture. And uh, you've got the Ukrainians waiting for them. Uh, that's what happened again. Uh, the, these attacks that come out of uh, Apitane uh, to the northeast against Avdivka. This is sort of the standard Russian attack. Uh, today, though, interestingly enough, there were uh, it was coordinated with uh, Russian airstrikes on the southern part of the city. But again, it 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 isn't working, and it it's too early, uh, way way too early to call Russia out in this fight. But I see the efforts around Abdivka, Dvuladar, Bakhmut, and I I don't see these Russian forces getting stronger. I don't see them getting more capable, and I don't see them getting more successful. And uh, that, that's a trend that, uh, you know, we all can take some cautious optimism in, I think. Yeah, and we don't see these Russian forces uh, getting redeployed. Uh, I don't think they really have the opportunity uh, to redeploy forces. Uh, and it, it presents a particular problem for them. Uh, if they send forces south from Kremna to Bakhmut, Kremna is suddenly weaker. Uh, if they uh, send forces into Avdivka uh, from Zaporizhia, uh, then Zaporizhia is suddenly weaker. Uh, and this will give Ukrainians opportunities. What do you think about the, the current deployment uh, of Russian troops? What Russian troops will be uh, could potentially be cut off from engaging Ukrainian troops. They're just going to be left in the backwater. Well, there, there are a lot of Russian troops uh, in, in Donetsk, and there are a lot of Russian troops concentrated. Uh, uh, so you think of Avdivka, it, it is a, a Ukrainian salient pushing into the Russian lines. So the Russians, again, they've got their fingers to the north of Abdivka and their thumb to the south. From what the order of battle, uh, open source order of battle that, that I can see, that the Russians are essentially concentrated uh, along the thumb. And uh, what the thumb, if it ever should break through, would give them is, is access to the M30 highway. Uh, there is a transportation uh, artery, the M30, that has the potential of allowing Russia to advance uh, quite a bit uh, in, in, into Ukraine. Uh, it, it's interesting to me, and, and again, fascinating and, 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 and confusing, all of the effort that Russia is putting into Bakhmut if that effort was put into uh, a thrust based south of Abdivka, coming from Donetsk and pushing up the M30 highway, I would think that that might be the best use of Russian forces in this entire war. So why don't they do it? Well, they're committed to Bakhmut. Where again, folks, the, you know, the, the rock of Bakhmut is Chasiv Yar, right? So we talk about the Battle of Bakhmut, we're really talking about, you know, the Battle of Eastern Chasiv Yar. 
here in Donetsk, what prevents the Russians from getting their ducks in a row and, and trying to project power south of uh, Avdivka up the M30 highway, which is a very likely avenue of advance. Paralleling the highway to the north is a water course, which would provide some security for those advancing Russian forces. They'd have a river on their right flank, which at least you would think would retard uh, the, the Ukrainian forces from, from attacking uh, from that quadrant. But a couple of things militate against this. Again, we talked about the inability for Russia to concentrate its forces anyway, anywhere. Uh, we, we, we talk about Ukrainian intelligence, including signals intelligence. Uh, they're reading the Russians' mail. And, and we're, we're talking about, although Russia has an, an overwhelming preponderance of, of forces in the Andivka area and in Donetsk, I don't see these people as being, again, particularly well-read, well-led. I don't see them as being well-trained. I, I see them as burning through their equipment daily. And a lot of their equipment, even if not their manpower, some of their equipment, it has to get sent up to back moon, right? So they are always robbing Peter to pay Paul in back moon. But this is a place that arguably should be the Russian center of gravity. There is a road out of, uh, you know, there, is a, there are roads out of, of Donetsk and Antivka, but the Russians cannot make this happen. And much as we saw in Kremena, the Russians are not able to, to, to convert superiority in forces and manpower at the point of contact. They are not able to convert that into territorial gains. And, you know, that's where they lack the secret sauce. And that's something that should, should be some, that they should be able to deliver that, but they can't. Uh, Chuck, I want to move on to uh, one more hand here uh, and then get to uh, F-16s, the tempo of battle, uh, and how long do we have to wait for the counteroffensive? Uh, Jens, go ahead, please. Yeah, good evening, everybody. I kind of when when I first heard of the um, you know the recruitment of of convicts for Wagner, I I kind of thought if I was thinking like a you know a ruthless Russian, I'd just think of that as completely expendable. Uh, and I've kind of been thinking about how Bakhmut developed, and then uh, I thought maybe uh, they were expendable as a kind of like an expendable uh, distraction while uh, more so-called uh, uh, capable Russian forces would head for Vulida or Divka. Uh, and then we saw in Vulida how, how they basically got wiped out. So I wonder if it was just... Uh, it just developed, and 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 they kind of lost the steam of those more important uh, areas, you know, at at Divka and Vulida. That was my thought. Yeah, it's you know you you, you constantly you know, you know combat is a dance, 
Uh, you know, whether it's a fencing match or a boxing match or a, or a football game, um, you, you, you constantly watch the enemy and you, you look for those openings and you look for patterns. And, uh, you know, I, I was a fencer in college. And, you know, I wasn't necessarily the best, best fencer, but my conditioning would often be better than people who had a much better point than I did, which was I fenced Epe. So it was, it's the one weapon in fencing where your whole body's the target, right? And you can hit me on the toe or the back of the head or anywhere. And there are also no rules of right away. In a sword fight, generally, you know, if I attack you in, in foil, you've got you've to parry my blow before you can attack me. In Epe, it's a knife fight. It doesn't matter. Whoever hits the first guy first. So you, you're engaging this guy and you're, you're, you're looking, does he have a pattern? Does, does he do the same thing all the time? And does he get, when he gets tired, does he fall back on a certain, on a, on a, on a certain technique or, a, a, you know, when is he more likely to lunge? When is he more likely to sort of uh, repose? So during the course of the last six months in this war, the Ukrainians have sort of become the kind of fencer who might not have the best point, but they've got the better conditioning and they are determining the pace of, of battle on that fencing strip. What I used to do is if I couldn't control the point, then I would try to control the pace and I could vary my own attacks and push the guy back. Cause on a fencing strip, you go back and forth. One guy attacks, you basically retreat and look for an opening. So, even though this battle has stalemated a little bit, I wouldn't say that stalemate's the right word. It's gone into a little bit of stasis. The Ukrainians have been very good at figuring out how the Russians fight. And it, the, the, the Russians have done some things by making themselves predictable. They, they've allowed Ukraine to keep in the fight and, and to, and to, keep bringing the, the fight to the Russians. We talk, we talk about Bakhmut. What Russia is still doing there and why they are so fixated on it is a riddle that we may never be able to solve. But Ukraine has been able to turn that battle as favorably as it can uh, for their side. Maybe 100,000 Russians have been killed or wounded in that fight. That's a, you know, that, that's two armies of, of Russian soldiers that weren't prosecuting the war anywhere else. And Ukraine has figured out, even though the city of Bakhmut is irrelevant, they didn't let it go. They didn't say, okay, forget it. We don't have to fight here. We don't, we don't need to. We've got Chasiv Yar that blocks their their. We, that blocks their advance. But the Ukrainian high command has looked at it in an entirely different way. We can fight in Bakhmut. We can take the fight down to the level on which we win. And that is rifle squad on rifle squad. Now, we may not have 100,000 men to throw into the Bakhmut cauldron and let them die. We can't do that. But we can fight them 15 guys on 15 guys. We can fight them apartment building to apartment building. And by entering into that fight like that, in Bakhmut, Russia has thrown away all of its advantages. 
all of its superiority in artillery, armor, uh, infantry fighting vehicles, the sheer number of troops and men and material that can pour into a battle, it's thrown all of those advantages away to get in there and fight doorknob to doorknob. And it's a mistake they've made before in this war. Ukraine learned the lessons of Bakhmut in the Battle of Severodonetsk last summer. That's where we saw this same sort of fight. And Ukraine realized that those cities are, are catnip to Russians. And you could lure them into that three-dimensional battle space and punish them in a way you can't do anywhere else. Okay, cut down to Abdivko. The Russians have got enough forces south of the city, in my estimation, that they should be able to break out uh, up the M M30. But they're not doing it. And, and why they're not doing it, uh, I, it, it, there are a couple of reasons. But one of, the, one of the biggest ones is I think someone, at least in the Russian army, realizes after Vuladar that they don't have the skill to do it. Think about what happened in Vuladar. Ten hours of combat spread out over two days, the worst and most egregious defeat in Russian arms since World War II. 40 tanks, 120 armored personnel carriers destroyed in two days of attempted offensive action on the part of, of Russia in broad daylight in perfect weather. They got their butts kicked and Russia thought they were hitting Ukraine where Ukraine was not ready for them. They thought they had established a, a reachable goal they were only taking this little village four miles from the front, and that was going to open a highway leading up uh, to the northeast to round off the corner of, of the Ukrainian salient there. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And that sent a reverberating message through the Russian war machine. That was three brigades of Marines, and they got their clocks cleaned. So... Uh, and again, we talk about this a lot anymore in the Russian army. Nobody wants to be the first tank to cross the zero line, to leave the tree line or to expose themselves. And it's, it's, it's having an effect, a highly negative effect on, on Russian war aims. And, uh, this summer is going to be really interesting for these guys. Uh, thanks, Jens, for your question. So Chuck, uh, Latin is here with us. F-16s have been the big news of the day. Uh, and just to launch this discussion of F F-16s, uh, so the big news of the day is uh, 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 the UK uh, and, uh, and the Netherlands. So this is uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, Mark Ruta, uh, agreeing to join forces, create a coalition, uh, to buy and donate F-16s to Ukraine, meanwhile to train Ukrainian pilots. Just to get this discussion off the ground, so to speak, does Ukraine need to wait for F-16s to be in theater uh, before being so confident uh, its counteroffensive will work, especially when the timeline for F-16s has been 
looked at as long as 18 months. Uh, Latin, Chuck, let's talk F-16s. I, I will only frame this, and uh, I, I leave myself wide open to Latin's air attack, but I don't think Ukraine has to wait um, for F-16s. They need them. They need to get them as soon as possible. Uh, I love to talk F-16s. I totally dig it. I want to hear uh, Latin kick it off, but I don't think they have to wait. But uh, they are a, a very important tool, if not a vital tool. And you got it, Latin. Uh, thanks, Chuck uh, and Alan and Will. Um, I suppose we, the, the first thing that we got to consider, and, uh, and I, maybe somebody has better information than me, but from what I understand, what came from the Pentagon today seemed to be a no to the U.S. providing directly, which is not new, um, and not definitive on whether they would approve a European transfer of F-16s. Does everybody agree that, that maybe that's where we're, where we stand on that part of it right now? Unless somebody heard something different. Well, you know, here's what I, I didn't hear a definitive no. And to me, the U S saying, we're not going to provide F-16s. You know, it's, it's like, it's like playing mom against dad. The answer is no until it is yes. And in the meantime, Latin, I, I think the allies, and uh, certainly with the, uh, at least a wink from the United States, I think they're moving forward with uh, providing the capability. Uh, you know, that, that, that's my take on it. But what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree. This seems to have a momentum that's been building probably since last year. And I agree. That's probably where it's going. I've always felt the Americans will, that the American administration will eventually uh hang on for a sec uh sure Aladdin. no no i'm good i'm good there's multiple conversations going on in this house <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah there's a lot of people busy here uh okay yeah no the um i i have always felt that the american administration will eventually approve this uh transfer and that that's exactly what they're looking for is for the europeans to take the the lead on it for domestic political reasons um, so that aside, uh, assuming the Americans, the Americans approve it, it seems to me two major questions arise because NATO can source F-16s. They've got a few lying around. The, the, let's assume that that is in the pipeline, that, that it becomes a reality at some point later this year. There are two other questions that also involve the Americans that are crucial and beyond the airframes themselves, which beyond visual range missile would the Americans approve to transfer with those F-16s? That's critical to their most critical tasking, which is air defense. And one that doesn't get talked about very much is what, if any, um, electronic countermeasures equipment would they allow also to be transferred with those aircraft? Both of those pieces of kit are essential to the air defense or at least essential to being more making them more successful in the in the air defense role. And when the when the Ukrainians talk about 180 kilometer range on a missile, they're talking about the D variant, the latest variant of the AMRAAM. Um, and I think that's very much an open question whether it's it's really from the administration's point of view, it's as big a decision, if not more, than sending what are essentially upgraded 
40-year-old um, F-16s. So those are two things that need to be defined at some point. But overall, of course, it's good news. Now, the other big thing that, need, that we need to figure out is how many, if this goes through. The best math that I've come up with on this, 30 to 40 airframes might be available from from the, the sources that we've been talking about, from uh, Netherlands, Denmark, possibly Norway. There's a lot of things that may or may not happen. They, they've got some of those uh, committed to that contract with Romania. But who knows if Romania couldn't be talked into something. I mean, there's going to be a lot of backroom deals going on with this. So the, the other thing I, I want to caution everybody on, look, it's a good day. It's a really positive, concrete step towards acquiring a weapon system that will save the lives of Ukrainian pilots and civilians on the ground. Full stop. I want to be absolutely clear about that. But I, I, I do think, and I, you know, I'm going to sound like a like a, you know, wet rag here, but I, we have to be careful about talking about air superiority because F-16s alone will not provide air superiority. Not in the conventional sense that that the United States Air Force or, or, or Naval Aviation or NATO think of it. Um, neither Air Force is gonna is gonna probably achieve air superiority in in this stage of the conflict. Anyways, Ukraine would have to develop a lot more capabilities that they don't have beyond just modern Western fighters. But that said, if these aircraft are delivered with, we know that they're probably going to be, unless there's some big surprise, they're probably going to be the MLU midlife update uh, variant. The radar on that is pretty good. Again, on the, the numbers I'm seeing, if apparently they had a 25% increase in the detection range. It, it might be somewhere around, and again, radar range on a radar is very variable. Lots of things affect it. But uh, I, I'm, I'm reading somewhere around the maybe 160 to 170 kilometer range, which is way beyond what, what they have right now with uh, their Soviet era aircraft. And if they, if they combine that with, at the very least, uh, an AMRAM C, ideally a, a D, um, that really puts pressure on, on the um, Russian air defense. Uh, done on those Soviet era aircraft. We had that conversation a few days ago. That would take a lot of pressure off of the F-16 acquisition, which will still go ahead. But you know what I mean? It will take it'll it'll create a lot less pressure for the Ukrainian Air Force in that transition. So hopefully I'm I'm, I'm hopeful that there has been some work done there, but we don't know yet. And there could be other sources. Um, you know, the, the French president uh, Macron on on TF1 last night, I was really interested in what he had to say. And I listened to it. I listened to a English uh, translated version done by France 24. And if you bear with me, I will just read you because I, I was so interested in it that I, I took notes on what he said. Let me just find it here because I sent it to Dolman earlier today. Okay, so here it is. He was talking to the reporter about um, training of Ukrainian crews in France. So that seems to be definitely something that's going ahead. And the reporter asked him, starting when? In France on Mirage 2000? Is that something mm -hmm. we can assume? Macron's direct answer is training can start straight away. So it's not a direct answer. Uh, it's a partial answer. And we've, we know, all of us who's, who've been following procurement for Ukraine at this stage, I think we know what this language sounds like. 
and what it means. So I think France might play a role here. Um, and on the training front, we can break some of that down because it's a complicated picture. What exactly? It, it's all vague, obviously intended to be. But at least we know that training is starting um, and that they've taken an important step in getting F-16s. So, Latin, can I take you a step back? Uh, because I've always been confused uh, about the U.S. involvement in releasing F-16s. It, it, so any NATO country flying F-16s, and they all do, I believe, uh, it, it requires the U.S. to say uh, you can transfer them or donate them uh, to Ukraine? Or, or does it depend uh, on how they're equipped, what weapons they're equipped with, uh, what the radar is, uh, et cetera? The, the manufacturing nation has a say in the export of uh, or re-export of an aircraft. In most situations that I'm familiar with, if even one component is, is made by them, right? So for to give you an example, um, Britain, the UK can veto any sale of combat aircraft to Argentina if they have a Martin Baker ejection seat made in the UK. Right? That's essentially how it works most of the time, at least in, in the Western world. So with the F-16, you have, you have an American radar, you have an American airframe, an American engine. Uh, it's, they've got to approve the whole thing. And then on top of that, they have to approve the weapon systems that are sent because uh, a, a beyond visual range missile like the, uh, like the AMRAM, which is what the Ukrainians want to get their hands on, it's a very useful uh, missile for them, uh, that has to be approved separately. And they, they may, I mean, they've, they've already got the early models firing them from the ground. I think, as I understand it, they're mostly B models, you know, but that's more like a 60 kilometer range. So this, this D model, is I think it's more in the 160, 180 range. It's a much longer range. So yeah, those things have to be approved. And by the way, if, if 30 or 40 aircraft, again, by my, by my reckoning, and that's the number I'm going with so far, what could be possible with this NATO deal, 30 or 40 aircraft, that's a great start. Um, but it's, it's nowhere near where they're going to need to be. I mean, that's a first step. And there's going to have to be quite a few steps uh, that may include F-16, that may, as a result of the political realities of procurement, may involve other sources. But um, realistically, going forward for Ukraine to complete the transition, for the Ukrainian Air Force to complete the transition to a Western combat force, uh, and if they, and, you know, facing a, a hostile neighbor that shows no signs of not being hostile anytime soon, I think we're looking at anywhere from 150 to 200 aircraft, combat aircraft that they would have to field. Uh, and that could be a mix of, it could include some smaller, cheaper to operate aircraft. Um, but that's what they're looking at for the, easily for the size of country that they've got. So um, this is going to be a process. Yeah, so earlier today, uh, Latin, I heard a really good question. Uh, if F-16s are, are coming to Ukraine, it presents Ukraine with a problem. Do they pull their best uh, fighter pilots uh, out of the air right now and send them into training? Uh, because they they need those pilots uh, to fly the Sukhois that can launch uh, the Storm Shadows. 
Uh, it, it's a, it, I mean, here is a problem all the way around the circle. Ukraine has a problem. The NATO nations have a problem. Uh, and apparently the U.S. has a problem. Uh, although the easy, easiest solved problem uh, is the U.S. problem. All they have to do is say yes. But, but what do you think about that? Uh, you know, Ukraine's best pilots, do they go into F-16 training? Well, typically the way a, an Air Force transitions to a new type is by unit. So in, in the case of the Ukrainian Air Force, one, a regiment, a particular regiment would be designated as the one that would begin the conversion. Um, and then they go to the next regiment. Once the first, first regiment or squadron in, in, in the West uh, becomes fully operational or wing becomes fully operational on a new type, which, by the way, in the, in, in the West typically takes a few years from initial delivery of the first aircraft to full operational capability it takes time. But anyways, yeah, usually it's done by unit, not so much by pilot. I'm going to go with what they've said from the beginning, which is that they have set aside a cadre of pilots um, that are earmarked for this training. So my guess is uh, those always sounded to me to be like younger pilots. That was just the impression I had. So, uh, I mean, the, the simple answer is that it's hard to say, but I don't think they would want to let go of take people that are really experienced. Look at that SU-25 pilot the other day that said he, he had just done his, his 300th mission. Astounding. Um, it's incredible. It's, it's just unbelievable, that, that pace of operations. And they, um, at, at the same time that it's impressive, it's also that that guy's worth his weight in gold. Because I mean, he can he can literally I think fly that aircraft with his with his eyes shut. Um, but um, yeah, guys like that, it would be very difficult because they play a very important leadership role as well. With anybody new that might be coming to the unit, it's hard. I don't know what their training syllabus looks like right now. I don't know if it's really been active or not. And my understanding is it has. You've got to assume then that there might be new pilots arriving at uh, at operational regiments. But yeah, you know, I think that's. From what I've heard, Alan, I think that's basically it, is they have those other pilots that are set aside, and that's the picture I've been getting. You know, there's a there's an interesting uh, factor here as well, and it's, as, you know, the, the F-16, the, the, the role of its the aircraft itself here is going to be help expand uh, Ukraine's air-to-air -air capabilities here not going to have air superiority for a number of years. We're looking for air parity. Uh, and, 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 and you hit, you hit it right on the head. You've, you've got guys right now on the front lines, like that Colonel who, you know, I don't even know anybody who's got 300 combat missions. That, that is incredible. You've got this incredible group of guys right now who are using their equipment, uh, you know, in, in its present state uh, to its maximum. Uh, they're doing an incredible job. They've done an incredible job. And I, I think I, I agree with you. you. You get another group of guys, promising young pilots, get them into the pipeline so they can arrive with the F-16s and, and other, uh, you know, air-to-air -air -air capabilities and expand that capability that will augment the existing uh, you know, attack pilots that, that they've got right now. 
one other thing, I, and I'd love to hear you talk about this, Latin, is how Ukraine's developing, uh, you know, uh, air defense capabilities. They go hand in hand with, uh, you know, su- supporting the Air Force, augmenting both your air-to-air capabilities and uh, supporting, you know, evolving ground attack missions. I wonder if you could, you know, you're the you're the guy I look to for this. Could you talk about how those those capabilities go hand in hand with uh, developing the Ukrainian uh, air force? Well, you're you're talking about what's called the integrated air defense system, which is the kind of the big picture of of a nation's air defense. Uh, and as we saw last night, you and and on the weekend. Um, the combination of Western and legacy systems, Soviet systems, they're doing something right. They're really getting it right. I mean, it, it, when, when I, it was enough to hear that they knocked out a, a Kinzhal last week, but that they knocked out six, just like that's stunning. It, it says a lot about the quality of the Patriot, and it says a lot about how quickly those crews have worked up on it. Uh, it's phenomenal. So, I mean, that's the kind of numbers I would expect to see out of, a, well, basically out of a, a United States military or Israeli military um, uh, crew on, on the ground. It was, it was incredible. So they are, because what, what, what Ukraine has right now, they don't have air superiority, but they have air denial. And air denial is um, where you're not allowing the other side to freely operate over your airspace. And sometimes I think they're starting to push the, kind of beyond the border on that, um, especially with some of these longer range systems that are coming to play. And potentially, potentially, because there is still some speculation that some of what we saw on Saturday might have been enhanced fixed wing capability. So in other words, Soviet era aircraft that have been um, enhanced in some way, but that's totally not confirmed. But the, I personally think there may be something to that, but we have to wait and see for for uh, some, some evidence. So the, the integrated air defense, the ground-based air defense, is giving them quite a bit of space to work with. Now, ha- that said, everything I see so far shows me that all of, the, all of the open source imagery that we're seeing shows the Ukrainian Air Force still operating at very low level. And, uh, and everybody needs to know that F-16s, when they arrive, are going to be doing exactly the same thing. They're going to be flying very, very low altitude. As long as the Russian combat air patrol threat is there, uh, that's what they're stuck with. But with the F-16, they'll be at a slightly better advantage flying at that altitude. And they're still going to be very dependent on flying within that um, that airspace that the ground-based air defenses are going to open up for them, that where the where the Russians don't dare go because they know they'll get shot down. They'll get shot down by the ground-based air defenses before the fixed wing unless the fixed wing has been enhanced i know there's there's a lot of unknowns right but from what we know if if it really is just legacy mig-29s and su-27s that they're flying they are largely dependent on the ground-based air defense um to give them the the uh, the space to operate in even at low level well we had a really interesting uh air battle unfold uh, last week with uh, uh, two uh, Russian strike strike fighters being downed, uh, one 
uh, Russian helicopter, uh, you know, electronic countermeasures helicopter being shot down, another Russian uh, helicopter being shot down. And this unfolded about the same time that uh, it was revealed that Ukraine had received uh, ADM-160 uh, countermeasure measure decoys. Folks, essentially a little cruise missile that you launch from your aircraft and it flies around convincing the Russians that it is a, a fighter plane or it can convince the Russians that it's a lot of things. Uh, we don't know that the uh, ADM-160 was used in that uh, situation. I found it a little coincidental, and there aren't very many coincidences in war. But that's another one of those capabilities that, uh, you know, th there was a real game going on there uh, where the Russians launched two very capable aircraft, and they thought the, they knew what was going on, and in fact, they didn't. And there's one of those interoperability uh Situations. I think the first time the world saw things like that was uh, during Vietnam and uh, uh, during the, the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War, where there were very sophisticated electronic warfare operations going on uh, to lure either side into committing fighter aircraft into non-permissive air defense situations. How, how do you see that sort of technology uh, leveraging uh, these future developments? Well, we're getting into a little bit of the unknown, and there are areas there that could really have an effect on the air war going forward if we had a better, if they're in, if they're in play. And we, there's a, lot, a couple of things. I'll explain what I mean specifically. That particular um, uh, Russian uh, strike package, it, from what we see, from what I've, I mean, I've had conversations with a few people, and um, it was probably a combat air patrol of... It, two, probably two Su-35s flying at higher altitude, the jamming helicopter. The other helicopter was was a, a transport helicopter. I don't think it was related to that operation. And then the two Su-34s, which were probably combination of some kind of precision-guided weaponry. And because this, this is the way they, they're typically loaded out when I, when I see images of them on um, uh, from the... Um, Russian Ministry of Defense, some kind of precision guided weaponry, glide bombs seem to be the favorite lately, and probably a, um, a, 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 a an anti-radiation missile of some type. The KH-31 is one of the more popular ones that they we see on them. So kind of a strike SEAD package, which would have been two, probably two Su-34s, the helicopter jamming, the, trying to jam the, the uh, Ukrainian radar, and um, and the Su-35s up top um, covering the whole thing. Something caught them by surprise, definitely. Something happened that they were not expecting. I don't buy the personal, just my own opinion. I don't buy the, the friendly fire thing. I think something happened, whether it was from the... Oh, no. Yeah, I agree. That was a great Yeah, it's just like, I mean, friendly fire, I, I, I mean, unless there were surface-to-air missile um, battery operators on the, on, the, on the ground, Russian operators that were drunk or high or something. I mean, it's friendly fire. You take out four? Four aircraft in a friendly within fire. A, well, I mean, look, yeah, look within a few minutes. Well. I just don't buy it. I, something yeah, also, caught them by also, surprise. And, and that's where there is that possibility. Someday we'll know. Uh, whether the Ukrainians had something in the air that was enhanced. When I, when I say enhanced, I mean 
something that would have had uh, a new radar installed, new weapon systems. These are not pie in the sky things. I don't, I'm not going to get into all the details of it now. Uh, I, I've, I've done threads on it. It's it's a thing. It's it's out there, right? If you Google it, you'll find it. Um, but either that and or something like an S300, very long range system that they were able to to get close to the border. That has quite a bit of reach. The other one that needs to be considered here as well is that the Ukrainians went into this war with very little in the way of their own electronic countermeasure capability um, if, in the air war. Uh, their fighters have no electronic countermeasures. Have they acquired some? The same day that that happened, um, Al, our friend Alex uh, showed us a picture. It was a still of a of Ukrainian Mi-8 taking off with an unusual thing on one of its pylons. And we looked at it in, in the back channels and I said, that looks like an ECM pod to me. And a few of the guys said, yeah, yeah, looks about right. So look at some of the Israeli technology that's making its way into the, into the battlefield. The Israelis are excellent at making that kind of equipment. And the Ukrainians are capable of doing it too. There were some projects in, in the works before uh, 24 February. So, you know, maybe they have a jamming capability now that the Russians weren't expecting. There's there's a number of things that could be at play, but I, I'm I'm convinced that the Ukrainians are fast on their feet and um, are gonna are gonna continue to surprise us. And you know, so, I, I was just gonna oh, say, please. Chuck uh, Latin, we have a lot of hands who I think want to get into this uh, conversation about uh, uh, F-16s. I'm gonna go to Raver. Uh, and then to Robin. Raver, go ahead, please. Hey, Alan, good evening. Hey, good day, Chuck. Hey, Latin. So F-16s are actually not on my menu, but hopefully related. Latin, one for you, and then Chuck, one for you that's more your specialty. Um, so Latin, my uh, wager, the marker I've placed is that Russia seems to be airframe limited on its ability to launch Kinzels, that they only have so many, and I think their upper limit operationally is probably six. I think we saw a maximum effort last night um, on how many MiG-31s they've actually modified to fire these things. And then, Chuck, it looks like the, the Ukrainians have pushed out to the last couple of streets in Bakhmut. Um, any updates there that I may have missed, or have you just not gotten there yet? Raver, you're oh, correct uh, on that one, though. I, I, I think uh, to the last couple of streets. Yeah, we've got. Uh, there is not a lot of Bakhmut uh, that is really left in in Ukrainian hands, but that that goes that goes back and forth. But but again, uh, you know, reframe the battle is a battle of chess if you are east, and I will let uh, Latin get back into into the air right now. But we'll, we'll we can get to that later. Latin, you are cleared hot. Thank you, sir. Um, Raver, your question is very good, and uh, I think I know the answer, uh, in my mind anyways. The Russians came into this battle with far fewer current combat pilots than any of us imagined possible. I mean, it's it's farcical. I'm hearing from different sources that a number of maybe 100. That would explain why they had to set up a – try to set up a, a Wagner Air Force, which is – obviously been a complete bust um and the airframes you're right that particular uh that particular variant of the mig-31 there weren't that many of them anyways and the russian air force was not being resourced or trained 
for the level, the tempo of operations that we've been seeing, and they've been doing it for a year now. So I never get, I'm never tired of saying that as much as the Ukrainian Air Force has been straining, uh, you can bet that the that the Russians ha- are as well. They're feeling it as much as they never admit it. Um, they they show us those um, those Ministry of Defense videos of Su-25 guys and Su-35 guys walking around doing their pre-flight checks like they're going for a for a Sunday stroll. Like no sense of urgency. It just amazes me those videos. When, when their people are dying, you know, when they need air support, it doesn't work that way, right? You know, the, the pilot isn't just walking around uh, ha- having a, a – anyways, it doesn't work that way. And I think that they're trying to create a sense of that everything's fine, but it's not. And that – you know, Vlad, you and I have talked about that, uh, you know, m- months ago, uh, you know, re- regarding flight hours, the proficiency – of, of Russian air crew, uh, that the, the guys were, you know, they, they weren't combat proficient. They were current in the aircraft. And the difference between fighting your airplane to its limits and just being able to take off and land safely and perhaps navigate a little bit is, you know, that is a, that is a far cry. And, uh, you know, even on the on the ground, uh, John Spencer and I were talking about the the training death spiral, and that's just for Russian ground forces that they they don't have the ability to replace their their losses at the current burn rate with with competent combatants, and in no place in the in, in modern warfare is the training more intense and more lengthy and it, and it has to be and more technically technical than for, than for combat aviation. And I, I you know, I don't know that Russia is going to be able to ever close that gap. Yeah. They're definitely not in a position to do it now. There are serious questions about the, um, uh, the intake of new pilots and they're, they're streaming through the, the system and how that was going even before the war. Uh, but obviously it always bears, it, it's, it's always good to repeat because I think Saturday was a good example of that, that where the Russians spent years upgrading some new designs, but mostly upgrading and showing off how they had planes that kind of looked like some of what the Americans had and and uh, on paper had the capabilities and i'm not saying they're junk but but the, the equipment is only part of it but while they were doing that they were really doing what in hindsight looks like it was just a bunch of a series of live fire exercises where in the west and the ukrainians had been moving in this direction because they were those exchanges that they had with the u.s air force uh they were learning and i think they picked up some of the ideas from the west which are that you don't just drop bombs and for the cameras, you push your people. When the, when NATO does an exercise, uh, and it's the same with the ground forces and, and naval, you push. You you push to the point where things screw up, where you make mistakes, and then nobody gets killed over it. You get you 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 review what happened. That's part of the process, and you learn. And that's a very different approach to training than what I think the Russians have been doing. And it's uh, part of why we're seeing what we're seeing. Which is, of course, not to say that they're not they're they're a paper tiger. They still have their air force is still capable of killing people. Let's be very blunt about that. That's that's the harsh reality here. But thankfully, um, I don't think they have the ability to really 
use what they have to the full extent of, of what it's capable of. So, Latin, is Russia running out of weapons to mount on its uh, aircraft? Well, that's uh, impossible to say for sure, Alan. But, I mean, I remember uh, as early as, what, late last, the fall of last year, there were those sorts of reports. And we've heard it at, at different times with, about cruise missiles. The fact that they've had to rely on Iranian drones, I think, definitely says something. And they're more advanced uh, missiles. They're leaning very heavily on their R-37s. They're very long-range missiles um, that their combat air patrol use. I, I, the overall answer, I would say, is that probably they're having big issues with that, yeah, because I, I doubt the production side is keeping up with it, and they're firing off a lot of stuff. So we have a... Go ahead, Chuck. Oh, oh no, it's just, just saying it's... You know, there are precision long-range uh, air-to-ground munitions, and, you know, they're, they're, we know they're expending them. But I, I bet that that's also going for their, their longer-range uh, and more sophisticated air-to-air weapons as well. And the other thing is, you know, an air-to-air missile is not like a bullet, folks. There's a lot more uh, technology, a lot more complicated firing point procedures. It takes a lot more to get that missile into parameters than it takes to aim a rifle. And that means training, training, training. And uh, there's where they're losing the, the, the bubble, I think. Alan, if, if I could quickly, I think there's one important point that I, uh, I, did, I forgot to make about the F-16. And I think, you know, we, we talked about the, the air superiority part of it and how uh, neither side's gonna achieve that. But another one to to consider is that the biggest threat that we're seeing from the Russians right now uh, is these cruise missile strikes from um, the, their strategic bomber force that fire them at, at distance. There is nothing in the Ukrainian inventory and there is nothing that any F-16 is gonna change about that. Now the F-16s might be much more effective at intercepting the cruise missiles themselves, but not the bombers. As long as they're being operated the way they are, it's going to have to require some other long-range system to maybe go after their bases. But the F-16, in its most advanced variant, cannot reach where those bombers are launching from. Yeah. Which is over the Caspian Sea, deep inside Russia, uh, over the Black Sea, etc. Uh, uh, Chuck, go ahead. Well, and you, we've been working together so long, you said exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> so, good on you. So we, we have Robin, uh, and then Armadillo, then Nick T. Uh, Robin, go ahead, please. Thanks, Alan. Um, this is just a footnote to this discussion. Um, on the issue of, of uh, Ukraine choosing pilots for the training programs, apparently it's hard to believe that there's a real paucity of Ukrainian language speakers among the Western trainers who will be training these pilots. So I, I saw a re, an interview um, on, it was, it was on YouTube, it was from a broadcast channel, unfortunately didn't make a note of it, but there was a, a Ukrainian pilot who had been pulled at least partially from his flying duties to take intensive English lessons. So Ukraine is clearly, um, is clearly has clearly selected um, some pilots who are going to get the language training and need to be able to take advantage of the training. That was all I had. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for being here. I've learned so much from you guys. It's really, it's really incredible. It's Slava Ukraini. Aron Slava. Uh, and thank you, Robin.
So onto Armadillo, then Nick. Armadillo. Hey, guys. Um, just been listening in here. I haven't been on the whole time. I've uh, been kind of on and then off. I guess what I'm really curious about right now is with the European announcements over the last, uh, well, today, I guess it's been less than 24 hours. What, what should we be asking in the U in the U S what exactly should we be asking, uh, our, you know, the president for, uh, the vice president, the senators, the representatives. I mean, we know there's, uh, S uh, Senate resolution one seven two, and we know there's House Res 332, um, you know, to support Ukraine onto victory. But are there, uh, you know, specific asks? I mean, is it still the F-16? Is it more F-16? Sounds like it is. But is there anything else? I mean, how, what do you guys recommend there? Thank you. Jazz of. Well, uh, at Latin, go ahead. I, I do know that Jared Golden, uh, who's a, a Democratic member of the, a member of the House, is going to issue a new colleague letter uh, to request the administration to send F-16s. Uh, so that's as, a, as important uh, as the Senate and House resolutions uh, calling for victory in Ukraine. Uh, Latin, did you have some info on that? No, I, I was going to just answer the, the question more directly, I think. I mean, again, I'm not American, right? So I, and I, I'm so cautious of not stepping into American politics. Holy shit. <laughs> but the, um, the, the, if you want something immediate as an American, I would say put pressure on or, you know, contact your elected official, let them know that this um, European F-16 deal needs to go through that the, and, I mean, that's a, as far as I know, that's an administration thing, not Congress, but um, it doesn't hurt to, or at least you can always contact your president, right? And, and tell him that. But um, that would be the most immediate thing. I mean, as far as F-16s coming from the U.S., I still see that as a, that's a few steps away. I just don't see it. I don't see it being possible before the American election, to be honest with you. That's just, I'm not looking at as partisan person. I'm, I'm Canadian. But that's what I see. you got to believe you, you know, I, I, I think there's there's another thing that we, we kind of have to separate, and, and that is what it is Washington says and what it is it's doing. And every time I hear the United States say something like, we're not going to uh, supply attackums to Ukraine, and the Kerch Bridge blows up, and then Washington reiterates, the United States did not supply attackums to Ukraine when Bahrain is armed with them, South Korea is armed with them, and Romania just got them four months before the Kerch Bridge. So what Washington says, what it means, and what it's actually doing at the time, I can tell you, folks, I worked in that world a long time, and those three things I just said, they never overlap. So, and imagine the political effects uh, of Washington saying, right now, we're providing F-16s, we're hosting training, that's just about to say. Sorry to interrupt. Oh no, absolutely. You, I agree with you. It is going to give Putin something to sink, sink his teeth. Yeah, and I feel like that's going to be like the reason he's going to want to push the button. Well, uh, Dylan, I just want to ask you to please mute your mic 
raise your hand uh, to get in queue uh, and don't break in, uh, please. Copy. Thank you. Uh, so a uh, Latin back to you, uh, then on to Armdillo for a follow-up, and then on to Nick. Uh, Latin. Yeah, very quickly. What Chuck said is, of course, absolutely true. And we've seen that play out with some weapon systems. We just saw it play out with Storm Shadow, where it had been rumored and rumored. And then not only was it announced, it was already in theater. It was already probably being like the moment they, it might even have been before they, they announced that it was already being deployed. So I, I really hope that that's the case with the U S and F 16s. It would be incredible. Yeah. It, it seems like the, the protocol is, uh, you announce a weapon in theater the next day it's used like storm shadows, right? Chuck. A absolutely. And uh, I can remember reporting on the possibility of storm shadows showing up uh, in Ukraine. And it was about seven months ago that that first wafted into the information sphere. And I, to me, I like the Norwegian model, which is all of a sudden there's NASM's operational in Ukraine and they came from Norway and Norway didn't say a word about it. I know this is a lowly contribution, but two, 270,000 anti-tank rockets, law rockets, anti-light, anti-armor rockets delivered from Norway. Norway didn't say a thing. So I think we're going to see, uh, as far as the F-16 goes, the camel's nose is under the tent. And I think the decision has been made to press ahead with that. And, uh, you know, the information sphere, it's not, you know, it, it, it's not there yet. And, and for good reason, we'll keep Mr. Putin guessing. Yes, we will. So Armdillo, then Nick. Armed, please go ahead. Thank you. Thank, thanks for coming back to me for a follow-up. I'll, I'll try to make it pretty quick. Um, I, I appreciate the, the responses. Um, love this space. Oh, my gosh. Uh, just everyone retweet this space. Um, reach out to your uh, your representatives, your your Senate, your if you're overseas, your MP, your PM. Uh, thank them for what they are doing. Ask them to do more. On to victory. And um, I guess just you know, lastly, I mean, encourage them that you know, su supporting Ukraine on to victory. Just this, we cannot worry about what Putin thinks. We cannot get inside of the mind of of a maniac. Um, I tend to believe he's not going to press any buttons. Um, but you know, the, the point is we cannot allow a bully to, you know, a bully who has nukes. We, we just can't, we can't continue to just appease and appease and appease and give in. And anyway, you, 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 you know, you guys can get knocked that out of the park probably better than what I've just said, but you know, to everyone out there, do what you can to reach out, to express Express your support for Ukraine and encourage your politicians to do the same on to victory. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Armdillo. Uh, so, Nick, uh, go ahead, please. Uh, quick mic check. Can you hear me okay? You're good. All right, thanks. So I ha um, <clears throat> have a F-16 related question, uh, but I also have a, a quick uh, request for clarification. 
I was uh, jogging a little while ago through my uh, neighborhood, which is has really spotty data uh, feed uh, reliability. And I heard what I thought was somebody saying that there's only 70 missiles left. And because of the context of the conversation before I'd lost the feed, I, I'm, I'm wondering if that was um, Kinzel's that, that were, uh, were being discussed. And my, my uh, question for uh, Latin in particular, um, but Chuck might, might know it too, is um, uh, you, you, began, you answered this partially Latin earlier. Is there a missile fireable from an F-16 that can take down a Kinzel? Thank you very much. So mm. that's that's a good question. <laughs> that is a good question, and uh, boy, I don't know. <laughs> I, I I don't know, but I, I I do think I do think this, and I'm glad Latin you're here to, and please roll up a newspaper and swap me if I if I get this too far wrong. You know, Russia was first into the hyper sonic missile space and we've got Kinzals and they're operational and we're doing this and they cannot be defeated and they can maneuver through their entire uh, target prosecution cycle. And we talked a little bit about the physics of how maneuverable a Mach 7 projectile actually is. And it turns out it isn't very maneuverable. And the other thing that happens is when you are moving that fast, almost unimaginably fast, whenever you maneuver that that missile, you are, you know, you are losing speed. The Russians thought uh, that thing was uh, uninterceptable. And I never heard anything from Patriot people I knew that uh, that indicated to me that they thought Patriot was the solution uh, to the Kinzhal issue. Uh, it, it looks like it is. And again, looking at that video we talked about, look, I have never seen a Patriot uh, battery fire like that. I mean, I didn't know they could fire like that. Uh, and I don't think there's any question that that battery or its proximity was the target. And, uh, you know, as far as I know, the Ukrainians went seven for seven and got every single one of those missiles converging on the same target, which you could have expected them to overwhelm by simply the volume of fire, but they didn't do it. And that, that is really impressive to me. I was also trying to think about if anyone said 70 missiles. I don't, I don't think we talked about the number remaining, uh, but one thing we did talk about is uh, uh, the MiG-31 uh, is the only, only aircraft that can fire a Kinzhal missile, at least right now. And it is only one missile per aircraft. Uh, but it did mention that, uh, you know, seven MiG-31s operational in a single strike, that that was a, that was a considerable uh, mission that involved a considerable portion of Russia's, uh, you know, MiG-31 MiG assets. And uh, Latin, do you think I, I stayed on the path of righteousness there? I think you did. Uh, for the most part, yeah. The, uh, the 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 only thing I would add to the to answering that question, uh, Nick, if I, I can tell you, there's no specific weapon that's anti ballistic that that you that is for for an F-16, for example, or, or any NATO uh, multi-role combat aircraft. They 
you can take a shot at anything you want. I don't think that the um, either of the short range, like a Sidewinder or the Beyond Visual Range, the AMRAMs, are were designed. I mean, they were not designed as anti-ballistic missiles. Patriot was. Uh, and beyond that, it gets into some serious engineering that's past my pay scale. But um, I do know, and it was interesting to hear on the weekend, an interview with um, MiG-29 pilot Juice, uh, where he said that uh, they, in their Soviet era aircraft, right, their MiG-29s and SU-27s, they have been taking shots at ballistic missiles. He didn't say Kinzhal in particular, but uh, I, I think he was, anyways, that could include the, the ground launch uh, uh, missiles that the Russians have, but they've been taking shots at them. He said, even though it's not ideal. So um, I suppose they could try, but really Patriot is the system that was designed for that from the, from, uh, from the beginning. And they've just, with different um, uh, generations of that system, they've gotten better. And obviously, where they are now is just like phenomenal, beyond what anybody thought. May I ask a quick point of clarification before I, I shut up and drop to back to listen? No, please. Is the please thank do. you is is the uh, Kinzhal there then a missile that begins its uh, uh, mission as a uh, cruise missile and then becomes a ballistic missile, missile as it nears the target. Is uh, is that what um, I'm, I'm understanding here? Thank you. Yeah, you know, as, as far as I understand, and Latin, again, I'm, I'm glad you're here as well. Uh, it is launched from a, a uh, mid to high uh, level. Uh, it, it climbs and then essentially dives uh, on, it, on its target. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm informed that the range of the missile is about 1,200, uh, 1200 miles. And I believe we're talking Mach, Mach 7. Is that, uh, am I again on the path of righteousness there? <laughs> that sounds about right. What it's an air launched ballistic missile, Nick. It's so definitely not a cruise missile, right? Cause the cruise missile typically has a, a jet motor, something that, that runs for quite a while for most of the of the flight of the missile and it because it's actually flying it usually has wings that so the 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 Kinzhal is a has a rocket motor and uh with that initial phase where it, it fires and then for the most of its trajectory it's it's just uh, kinetic right it's just uh, forward motion um so yeah that's uh what they've done with it what makes it different from its ground launched um variant is that it by putting it on what is already a very high high power fast aircraft the mig-31 was designed as a, as a long range very high speed bomber killer during the cold war and so you combine that it's roughly you know it's more slightly more than mach 3 performance that's what gives it that the boost that's what that's why the console has a higher speed than its ground launched variant because of that airspeed at which it's launched. And that's essentially it. I, I have my doubts about its supposed incredible um, maneuvering, because if that was the case, I'm not sure the Patriots would be hitting it so easily, but then again, that, that maybe it's just that the Patriots maneuver very well. But again, past my, past my uh, pay grade, I'm not gonna speculate. And I, I, I was able to unearth a quote uh, from uh... Uh, Ukrainian representative, the main director of of, uh, of intelligence, and 
his estimate was that uh, Russia currently has approximately 40 Kinzhal uh, weapon systems, uh, you know, uh, available for deployment. So, you know, that, that, that's a number. It's not a really big number. And uh, I think maybe uh, 15 of them have been used uh, thus far in the war. And I think maybe it's a little less than that. But, uh, you know, we can, we can see that they don't have an unlimited supply. Thank you guys very much. I'll happily drop to listener and um, uh, uh, gladly listen in to Dr. Nick and, and uh, more of more of you all. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, so on to Dr. Nick, uh, then to Latin. Uh, so just, uh, I'm probably going to slaughter uh, the description of this, but I heard somebody address this um, a little while ago. And what I recall them saying, and maybe this might uh, joggle Latin's uh, memory or somebody else, was that it, when it was dropped out of the plane or whatever, um, that it would uh, reach its uh, supersonic, quote unquote, speed, uh, you know, pretty rapidly. Um, but then it just, you know, it just sort of like levels out. Um, and so that is why, um, you know, when, when people were talking about wood, uh, before they were actually, I guess, put into uh, theater, right? People were saying, uh, oh, nobody's ever going to be able to catch these things and blah, blah, blah. This is when it was talked about. And I can't remember who was was that was talking about this and people were speculating that actually no they'd be able to and this and it was this description that was given and whoever it was that gave the description said that this was why was because uh it would uh reach that uh you know supersonic speed and sort of level out because it can only go so fast if that kind of makes sense and that the patriot uh would be able to intercept it uh, because of that, um, uh, and uh, because it could sort of, I guess, um, anticipate where it would be. Um, and uh, so anyway, I don't know if that makes sense, my description. Uh, uh, so um, I don't know if that makes sense to anybody who's in uh, the aviation business or anything like that. No, that's, uh, you nailed it. I. You know, as far as I under, understand, the, the missile is launched, uh, leaves the aircraft somewhere around, let's say, 40,000 feet. Uh, it, uh, it has a uh, somewhat of a parabolic flight component. It, uh, it will climb uh, between 40 kilometers and 100 kilometers above the Earth. That is, uh, that is pretty high. We're talking, uh, uh, you know, definitely the air is getting pretty thin up there. Uh, then it then it dives on the target, and I think its maximum Mach number is Mach ten, uh, which is incredibly fast. That's ten times the speed of sound. And uh, you know the the engineering again. Look, I got a psychology degree, so I don't know anything I'm talking about here. But uh, you're talking about something that is 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 getting incredibly hot, and the aerodynamic forces on this weapon are in, incredible. The engineering is 
is absolutely amazing. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I've been impressed and I would have to say even surprised that the Patriots uh, have acquitted themselves uh, so well. And the numbers, uh, again, I was doing a little digging here. Uh, Ukraine is of the opinion that that uh, Russia has fired uh, somewhere between 70, 17 and 20 of these missiles so far uh, in the war. And uh, again, that number uh this was from a Ukrainian intelligence official. Uh, he thinks that uh, Russia has 40 operational missiles. Um, if they've expended half of those missiles, that's, that's on par with what we understand to be the burn rate of their other uh, precision uh, strike air, air deliverable missiles as well. So uh, they're burning through them at a pretty good clip. And they can't manufacture any more of them. Uh, Latin, go ahead. Um, Alan, on a slightly different subject, can I just mention, um, it was something I really did want to mention because it was, it's been a big part of the news the last couple of days before the F-16 thing. And there, there's a lot of confusion out there, but can I just, a few thoughts on the, the training side of what's been announced? Oh, absolutely. The the training side of, of F-16 pilots? Yeah, or, or you know, generally of, of pilots. I guess it's all kind of pointing in that direction. But um, it's another area where it's very vague, uh, intentionally, I'm sure. And it's just important to remember that it really could mean a number of things or all of the above. And, and it, it could mean the training of experienced pilots on operational NATO aircraft. It could mean simulator work. It could mean, um, it, I think... The, very likely it involves um, training on on modern trainers, modern trainer aircraft that um, are able to actually simulate uh, air-to-air and air-to-ground engagements and have very modern cockpits that that give the, uh, the pilot, see they're coming from analog cockpits and I know I've said that before, but it's a very, I know Goldman's emphasized the importance of this as well. It's a very important part of the transition to go from the, that older type of, of uh, working environment to where they've got a couple of two or three glass uh, screens in front of them with all sorts of information. And that's what these aircraft, these modern trainers are able to do. The French have them, the British have them. Um, that definitely, I would put money on that being part of this. But, you know, again, going back to that interview that President Macron had where he was asked, well, are they going to be flying Mirage 2000s? And he just answered, the training is starting. So completely uh, ambiguous. So there's a lot of possibilities. Um, and, and part of this, too, is also that it appears that, especially on the British side, there seems to be the creation of or the intention to create um, uh, a stream of new pilots, not not experienced combat pilots, but of of trainee pilots, uh, the ele- starting at the elementary phase. So that's a long-term, that's more of a medium or long-term project for Ukraine. Very important. Um, but so th- there's a number of pieces to this. It's it's still not really crystal clear what's going on. Um, I mean, specifically, what are they going to be flying? What are they going to be training on? But, and, and again, and there's always that possibility that something could either already be happening or planned to happen in the U.S., which I certainly hope, because that would accelerate things quite a bit if the U.S. were to be involved in this. 
You know, Latin, I, I, I did notice as well, there were uh, indications that at least some of the Ukrainian pilots were going to be training, you know, on Texan 2s, which is a turboprop uh, primary flight trainer. And also some, uh, you know, I noticed some other aviation types that were, uh, you know, essentially uh, basic jet trainers as well. So I, I, I think you're right that at least some of this training push will be taking uh, pilots, you know, basically through the entire developmental uh, sequence and, uh, you know, from basic flight uh, up to, uh, you know, training in type. And, uh, you know, that, t- that takes years. I mean, it's like training a SEAL. It takes, you know, it takes as long as it takes, two or three years. So, uh, but you get a good product at the end of it. Chuck, when you mentioned uh, Texan two, I mean, I hate to, I'm not trying to split hairs here, but uh, Texan two was that were you referring to uh, on the U.S. side or because RAF flies the equivalent aircraft with a slightly different name? But were you hearing more like RAF or USAF? No, th- th- this was actually a, 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 a British aircraft, and you know, I was looking at it, and it looked like a it looked like a Texan two. It, believe it or not, it I is, but I'm T-34 Charlies. That's that's how old I am. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, it's uh, that's that is a while back. Uh, no, the um, just on a historical note, it's what they're doing is they're repeating uh, what the original Texan did, which is that um, the Americans call it the Texan the, in the Commonwealth. We call it the Harvard. So it's the Harvard, too. But, yeah, it's the same aircraft. And it is that same category of modern, in that case, turboprop um, that gives the pilot a modern environment. That looks a lot like it brings them very close to what something like an upgraded F-16 would look like. So it really um, narrows that gap that that pilot has to has to jump. Uh, and it is, uh, you know, th- this is a process that the West understands very well. And uh, right. It, it, you know, it, it's having the aircraft, it's having the the ability in these host training nations uh, you know, to to uh, host these pilots, to train them, to have the the institutional bandwidth to add these young pilots into the, you know, into the their own existing uh, training syllabuses and requirements, and you know, all of this basically, folks, it comes down to money, right? And who who's got the money and the ability to do this? And I I I think the issues of yes and no on the M sixteen. Uh, Aside for a moment, I think NATO is finally leaning into the aviation component here. And I think it's something they should have done last summer, but uh, that's just me. Uh, Chuck, uh, I want to thank you for a solid three hours tonight. Uh, We have covered a lot of ground. Uh, Weapon systems, uh, the battle in Bakhmut, Avdivka, uh, taking a look at Kherson, Zaporizhia. Uh, Latin, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, but I, I know Chuck's time is short. Uh, Latin's time is short. Uh, so I'm going to take two last hands. How's that? Uh, Will and Dylan. Will, go ahead. Hey, thanks, Alan. Uh, Chuck, we didn't really get up there tonight, but I, I'd like to ask a quick question up up in uh, Svatova Kupiansk area. And um, that is... Given the four to one to five to one troop advantage that they had up there, um, 
don't you i mean i hate to tell him what to do but don't but don't you feel like the uh the missed opportunity for russia has been uh advancement up there uh north of svatova to protect that that r66 highway because it, it in my you know layman's view of a counteroffensive that's pure tank country up there and and not being able to uh maintain a bigger buffer between that highway to the north which is their only main supply route from the north uh russia down into down into northern luhansk isn't that a, a major missed opportunity when they had so many uh forces uh up there and do you, do you do you have any reason on why they did that or was the sucking everybody into bakhmut just so irresistible or, or, or directed of them. I, it just seems to me that uh, uh, a, a, an arc of a counteroffensive will be directly through to uh, uh, north of Svatova to, to knock out that, that supply line. Yeah, you, you, you hit it right on the head. I, this, this effort in Bakhmut, it, it did have to take away from, you know, from other, uh, other places where Russia should have been uh, active. I was going to put a, a Cremena map up today, but uh, it was one of those days where nothing happened up there. There were a few uh, Russian airstrikes, but there was no uh, ground combat. That'll probably change tomorrow. Uh, but you, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, there, Russia would love to get at Kupiansk, but to do that, they'd have to uncover uh, Savatovic. I don't think they're going to do that. Uh, and and Kremena is basically the way it has been for the last couple of weeks, uh, except Ukraine has uh, crossed the P-66 north of there. They seem to have solidified control over that, which goes back and forth. But, uh, you know, you wound it up right on the head uh, by by putting all of their eggs into back mood. They, they have diminished their their offensive capabilities up and down the line, and that's actually a good thing. Uh, Dylan, you get the last question. It better be a good one. No All problem. right. Well, it's going to be kind <laughs> of an interesting one. Um, so I just have a quick question. If anybody's heard about the this uh, singer for Ukraine that's uh, that shed light on the location of Ukrainian air defenses. I don't know if anybody's heard about it, but I just read about it just recently, and I thought that was kind of crazy. So it, it kind of makes me think maybe there's people that are inside Ukraine that are maybe doing work that we don't know about. Um, but I have no clue. She apologized, apparently, but apologies can, you know, only go so far. That's I didn't hear anything about that, so I'm going to... Yeah, I just read about it in an article on Twitter. I heard about it. Okay. All right. I'm not the only one, then. Yeah, it was... Uh, I guess she was the girlfriend of some, like, drug dealer. Yeah, drug dealer. Yeah. Gangster. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she had uh, been, I guess, live video recording and put up some uh video on tiktok or something like this she didn't realize it was gonna like hurt the ukrainian air defense i guess 
Right. That's, but that's it's, what her statement was. That was that's what her statement was. But yeah. at the same time, it's like, how are you this far into the war and not right. realize, you know, that you, you should not be that. taking yeah, images of of uh, defenses because the Ukrainian government is constantly saying don't take pictures of you know our troops don't take pictures of our movement don't take pictures of you know our air defenses or anything like that and put it on the interwebs <laughs> um you know they're, they're constantly saying that inside of ukraine so um i have a feeling she's going to be getting herself in trouble just a bit and dr nick i can tell you that on the air side that's been a pretty effective campaign um Good for them, right? Operational security is important, but because I like to really break down and examine video of aircraft, and they've done an excellent job of, of not showing much in open source that we haven't seen already. That tells me something is uh, something interesting is behind all that. Right, right. I mean, and and so that this is, I guess, one reason why they're sort of uh, thinking that. Uh, or at least some people are speculating why perhaps uh, maybe part of the Patriot system may have been uh, somewhat damaged. I guess it's still operational. I don't know. I mean, I know that it's a large system, um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, that was the one that uh, was, was damaged was the one that she took a picture of. And, and she shouldn't have done it. (laughs) Yes. Supposedly it was damaged, but, I don't know. I've never right. I Russia said they completely destroyed it, but yeah, I mean, that's it, not true. the United States uh, came out and said that um, it's likely that it wasn't fully destroyed. And I I live in the United States, so right. Take yeah, no, they said that it wasn't salt. destroyed. They said that, <laughs> that it took. They said that it took some damage, but that it, it's it's essentially right. fine. Um, but uh, it took some some minor damage. Um, but, uh, you know, that it, it shouldn't have, uh, done that. It shouldn't have happened. Well, the, the key, well, the key, Dr. Nick, I, I think, have a look, sorry, Chuck, have, have a look at, uh, John Ridge, um, on, on Twitter. If you want to look at his analysis of it, it's superb. He has real expertise from like 30 or 40 years on this. The truth is, um, that may have been a, a, a little backlash from a missile uh, that was fired. There were a lot of Patriots fired at that time. So he suggests that it's very possibly uh, a, a, a little bit of a slight misfire of one of the missiles as it was taking off. Potentially, it might be debris falling on it. Because remember, when you're trying to interdict something that's coming down almost vertically at six or seven Mach 6 or 7, and you shoot it, it is going to break up into debris that doesn't vaporize. It, it continues falling, and that may have happened. Now, the interesting part is that if, if any debris or misfire uh, hit that, that missile pod, that's the easiest part of a Patriot to replace because it was empty, almost likely, with, with the number shot. So um, I, I wouldn't worry about it. But the, the, key, the key message on this is, Everybody, including everybody on Maria Report that we've talked about before, don't let your exuberance to uh, uh, talk about and cheerlead um, a Ukrainian victory lead you to exposing things which it would be best to wait. Right. We all want to we all want to be the first to know what's going on because that's what we're here for. But 
I just encourage everybody to be patient and don't post anything until you see the Russians posting it on Telegram, because if, if they're posting it on Telegram and Dylan, what you suggested is there are definitely people inside Ukraine who are providing information on purpose to Russians and they periodically you see them get arrested. The key is don't try to be the first person. None of us, well, other than Alan, are journalists here. So don't try to scoop the world. You're not going to get a Pulitzer Prize. Just wait a little while until you see it posted on Channel One or, or, or Telegram, because once the Russians know about all the video that you're talking about, then it's okay to talk about it because it's already out there. But don't be the try to be the first person. And for God's sake, if you're in Ukraine, anywhere, don't take photos of equipment locations, unit designations, or anything like that and post it on the internet unless it's provided by the Ministry of Defense because you are simply damaging Ukraine's abilities at that point. And I'd encourage everybody not to do that. Just this woman's use, exuberance over success uh, led her to post something that was inappropriate. I hope she's been chastised and nothing more than that. I hope she's just been chastised and serves, serves as a learning point for others not to try to uh, scoop everybody by something you saw first. Best to wait until uh, the Ministry of Defense says something, uh, as Prince, when she'll be up soon, always does, and she always scolds us not to do, which is great, because we all need to be reminded that uh, this, is, this is not TV. It's a deadly game, and we want one side to make sure that they come out ahead. Yeah, Will. I, I don't want to be the first to report this, uh, but uh, Muscovy has uh, uh, surrendered. Uh, Putin is en route to his mansion in Sochi. Uh, the window washers there have demolished his mansion. There is no place for him to land, and his flight has been diverted uh, into the Indian Ocean. Oh, wait. <laughs> we can all go home. <laughs> You've been reading my Twitter feed again, haven't you, Alan? Well, there's nothing like fantasy, Will. Uh, Chuck, I want to thank you so much uh, for tonight. It's been a great session. Uh, Thank you for all your information and your insights. Tuesdays, Thursdays, uh, any other day of the week when something really important happens, they wouldn't be the same without you. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks. Love Ukraine. Thank you, Alan. Thank and Latin. Thanks for thanks for adding our air, air hot sauce tonight. I appreciate it so much, Doctor Nick. Love you, everybody. Thank you love so much. Good night, Alan. Always, always great, my brother. A big abrazo to you. Good night, everybody. See you, Chuck. Uh, good night. Good night, Chuck. Uh, good night, Chuck. Uh,